Let's get into Hen and Lauder, because I'm clearly deranged. <laughs> I'm gonna do this whole thing as Bilal. I'm gonna do this whole thing as as unnamed unique freak guy. Let's go. <laughs> Half moon. <laughs> Toothy! Toothy! Can you this... believe they thought they could recast Toothy for part three? Can you fucking believe it? John? What's more scandalous than that? Nothing. Nothing. There's nothing more scandalous than that. <laughs> <laughs> You can't think of a single thing. I knew you couldn't. This is the Pink Smoke Podcast, but this isn't going to be our regular, super structured, formal type show. This is going to be a laid back appreciation of one of our all time favorite filmmakers, Mr. Frank Henenlotter, who yeah. made six spectacular horror movies. Uh, the first thing I kind of just want like right out of the gate want to ask you, because watching these movies again, I always think like, oh, this one's his masterpiece. Oh, no, wait, this one is his masterpiece. <laughs> I know this one is kind of more his masterpiece. This is just like a body of work. I feel like, do you agree with me? That is like, you can't pick a it's, best one. It's Frank Hinnenlotter's perfect six is what I always call them. Yeah. Um, although we should mention his, his documentaries too, at the, at the end of the episode for people who don't know who Frank Hinnenlotter is, he made basket case, basket case two, basket case three, the progeny brain damage, Frankenhooker and Bad Biology. And it's funny, I watched them in reverse order of how much I remembered liking them this time. So I started with Frankenhooker, which I always thought of as like, I don't like that one very much. And then went to Bad Biology, then went to Basket Case 2, then Basket Case 1, then Basket Case 3, then Brain Damage. And it was interesting to watch them because I was like, I'll, I'll finish this because we just had this idea to do this episode very spur of the moment uh, and like between a week of, hey, let's do that. And then we're recording it. So I watched all six films very, very quickly. And what struck me this time is I fucking love all of these. I fucking yeah. love all of these movies top to bottom. Why did I think I like Frankenhooker less than any of the others? That's a stupid thought to have had for a moron <laughs> to have had. And I know and I know the audience is used to us being a very black tie high class affair here at the pink smoke and we're in we're in our jams we're in our beach our, our board shorts for this one but uh <laughs> but this is i just i'm i'm so you and i share a love of frank hen and lauder it binds us together very tight i'm i'm so in love with these movies and him as a filmmaker watching it this time it really struck me as like he's my other He's like my other Sukamoto, where just the older I get, the more I'm like, no, this is this is this is the way. This is this is the truth. This is this is the light, you know, kind of yes. kind of thing on them. And I don't, I don't think there's a best. I think if you forced me to pick my very favorite, it's brain damage because it appeals to me on a personal level in some ways, very co uh, more than the others, but like, I, I fucking love all of them. I fucking love all of them. I take it. You agree with that, right, John? I, I think it's the best one is whichever you're watching at the moment. Right? That's what it comes <laughs> down to. No, my, my kind of thought that kind of just stuck with me was, you know, well, 
I think, you know, basket case is the one is like, it's like the one he should be remembered for. Like that's the classic. Yeah. But like, but brain damage is like the masterpiece was kind of like what I thought going into yeah. it. Like that's the one that just like has all of his ideas has the budget that he is can comfortably make the kind of movie he wants without any hiccups. Although lack of budget is certainly part of the huge charm of basket case. No question. Uh, but it's, it seems to have a kind of like a more coherent kind of aim and goal uh, and kind of gets in there and does its thing in a way. I think that not all of his films necessarily do. However, I also had the same thought of like Frankenhooker is probably the least good of them uh, or like the one I liked the least, but watching it this time, I didn't have that thought at all. I thought this is fucking great. I love this movie. Me this movie too. Has so many great ideas. Watching it's so it funny and watching it so close to the others. It's like, no, it's exactly a part of them. Yes. I always think of it as being like more comedic than the others in some way. Uh, and maybe it is. But it's so much a part of them. It's so yeah, so much a part of them. Sitcommy, a little more broad. I mean, the he basically came up with the title and the basic idea like in a board meeting, just off the cuff. You know, everyone always says like, "Well, no wonder it turned out that way." If he just kind of thought of it, pulled it out of his ass, you know, in front of a bunch of suits trying to get some money. But no, I think that that movie actually there's something very essential about it. Yeah, very you know, capital H Henlotter about that one, just <laughs> as much as the others. Yeah, I think to a lot of people, that's probably one of the the real essential ones. I think that a lot of Hen and Lauder fans would be shocked to hear us disparaging it in some way, disparaging it to set up. No, we were wrong. We love it. You know, that kind of yeah, disparagement, yeah. which always annoys people for some reason. Well, it was also um, kind of the one that like, you know, so I said to somebody, oh, my God, Frank Henlotter is the best. And they go like, oh, yeah, I love Frank and Hooker. You would think you're not a real Hen and Lauder fan. That's the <laughs> only one, you know, that's the well, only one. You haven't watched all three Basket Case movies, you poser. It's also when you say, I love Frankenhenlotter, and they're like, Frankenhooker? And you're like, no, 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 no. But now I'm like, yes, yes, yes. I'm going to block you in my basement until you like Frankenhooker. Um, <laughs> I came to these movies really late, too, because of Frankenhooker. I'd seen Frankenhooker when I was in high school and like a horror kid, you know, like a lot of like a lot of serious cinephiles my my trajectory to getting into serious movies goes from being like a horror movie fanatic and doing like weekend marathon viewings of every friday the 13th movie and that sort of leads you down a path to the thing and texas chainsaw massacre and and those are sort of a gateway into real movies then you love john carpenter well what's howard hawks all about that he's talking about all the time toby hooper comes out of like the sort of beatnik experimental world what's what's what are those movies what's this what's it's the the sort of bridge into things you know you want to see all the classics so you watch eyes without a face and m and these other sort of uh horror movies and that that leads you into the world of horror cinema and so I had I had loved horror movies as a horror kid, like you know, like I you were as well. And I had seen Frankenhooker when I was like probably fourteen or fifteen, I bet. And it was not the kind of horror movie I liked. I was really against horror movies that were campy and sort of diminished the genre. And I think I was too young to understand. Um, what that movie is about and what it's doing. But I, I had a super allergy to like, so bad it's good movies and um, and sort of like diminishing the horror genre through campiness. Like this is all stupid. So let's make a joke of it as opposed to like understanding the real black 
beating heart of the of the horror genre and how it is really uh, the most consistently if there's a genre that's most closely connected to art I, I think it's the horror film. I think it's the one that's the most essentially cinematic, you know, and in some fundamental way. Um, and so Frankenhooker put me off at him, uh, off of him. And it wasn't until we were much older. You were like, you were, you told me like, you've got to see his other stuff. And I feel like it was really late in the game. If you asked me, it was like, I wasn't 30 until I saw any of Frank and Henlotter stuff. I know that's not true. It was probably like 22, you know, but, but it did feel like, oh my God, how am I discovering all of this just now? How is this all coming across my, my plate just now? You know, the, they're so not what you expect them to be uh, in some fundamental way that, that I came to them very late. Well, to put just in a little bit more context from the time in the late 80s, early 90s, when we were growing up, uh, video stores, you know, just needed shelf filler. There were so many horror films made, cheapy horror films, filling the shelves, lining these shelves that it was hard to differentiate if I had a lot of movie from, I don't know, uh, a waxwork film or the Warlock movie. Ghoulies too. Night of the Demons, whatever, you know, just yeah. whatever was just like ending up on the shelves. Anything coming out from Full Moon or whatever. Uh, it was hard to say. Uh, this one is because they were all kind of uh, for me anyway, it's like they're all worth your time because you have a fun time, even if it's not a particularly good movie. And it's always, you know, a fun one just to throw on. But to actually differentiate one is like, no, this is something. This is something completely different and worthy of, you know, passing around and like getting the word out on this guy. Hen and Lauder. It was just hard to like f discover those movies because everything ended up in Fangoria. Every Friday the 13th sequel, you know, everything was like. Uh, there was like cheerleading for every single thing at the time. And it, we didn't get the kind of thing where, you know, these uh, individual directors were celebrated that the way they are all these years later, the way that people are finally recognizing like these individual artists. So to like dive into this world, this video store world and like come up with something like brain damage felt like a real discovery. Like, holy shit. I found someone with an actual voice, someone who like has an actual purpose and is like a, a fucking genius, you know, among all these other guys. Not to say there weren't other geniuses around there, but like that one just stood out so immediately and so obviously. And I could see how Hen uh, Frankenhooker would be like the one that, you know, you'd be like, oh, this is like those other things, you know, a little bit more. But well, you know, well, watching it this time, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, not to interrupt. Watching it this time, it was a it was had the trauma distribution card on it, the Kaufman and hers distribution yeah. card. And I don't know if they had always traditionally distributed and i just never noticed frankenhooker is what you hope a fucking trauma movie is going to be and they never are when you watch frankenhooker you're like this this is the promise of trauma fulfilled you know like outrageous violence a weird plot naked ladies but it's fun and you can actually watch it it's not tromeo and juliet which is impossible to sit through and that's one of the good ones let alone like terror firmer sergeant kabuki man Th those are the, those are the cream of the crop those are too high i should be talking more about like <laughs> flesh eating grannies and stuff stephanie and the incinerator and these like you know these non-movies that they distribute and and frankenhooker really is what you always hoped a fucking trauma movie would be it's actually the promise of trauma fulfilled the one time that like that kind of movie actually plays that's a perfect comparison. I mean, you just think about James Gunn, you know, who obviously got his start at trauma and, uh, and wrote 
co-wrote Romeo and Juliet and then, you know, kind of went on to be like, but, but, but honestly, in my heart, I'm a Hen and Lauder guy, you know, names the, the, the roadhouse in Slither Hen and Lauders, you know, yeah, that's clearly where his heart really is. And it's like, you strive to be Hen and Lauder. I know you do. And one day you will, you got to get out of this trauma game and like get into the real world. James Gunn. <laughs> um, it's also funny talking about horror films. And I think the way we're going to structure these episodes is we'll just go through each film one by one. There's only six of them and talk, talk a little bit about them, but um horror movie that's the other thing when you're young and people are telling you to see horror movies god bless horror movie fans i am one of them i'm of the same mindset but they they are the least discerning fandom you will ever encounter maybe like yeah it's just you will get told to see this movie it's so great and it's nothing you know and this happens over and over so you can't trust what any horror fan tells you to see. It's just not good advice you're going to get. So when they say, see, Frank Henenlotter is one of the best and you watch Frankenhooker and it's like, oh, it's oh, it's that kind of thing. And I didn't appreciate how good it was. I was wrong as a teenager too. I definitely didn't appreciate uh, what a cut above <laughs> um, a lot of stuff it is. Um, and then it's like that. You're just like, oh, well, another bad recommendation. You know, there's people out there because you run into a lot of horror fans who are just like the crazy lady in the video store who's like, I, you have to see Doll Man versus Demonic Toys. You know, it, like that lady, you know, who the, the person who's keeping the Witchboard series in business, you know, those those people are 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 out there and you sort of learn really quickly, like you're going to get told to see like you know, uh, fucking the burning, you know what I mean? And people are going to be like, this is, this is something, not nothing. And hey, you go, when you say you're one of them, I'm, I'm guilty. I'm someone who says, watch Dr. Giggles to people, you know, <laughs> I should be. Although you're better than that. I trust you because you'll say things like watch the majorettes and then it'll be something, not nothing. You yeah. know, you're, you're sort of my go-to and, you know, and I don't even mean that critically, uh, uh, like doll man versus demonic toys is better than um fucking scarecrows you know what i mean like <laughs> like they're they are correctly identifying the the floor there's no floor to the genre so when people are like that's a very low bar to clear even getting to that bar you're still above like 40 percent of the genre you know even that that sort of derangedly bad full moon video level garbage, you know, it's, it's really, no, but I, I think you, you nailed it with tra- the trauma comparison. That really is like, like these guys, you know, say we're doing this, these indie movies, low budget indie movies that are funny and wacky and, and gross and outrageous like and having a measure of political insight to them. Yeah. 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 Everything promised from a trauma movie. You actually watch one and you're like, eh, Okay, it was it was barely a movie, but all right. <laughs> yeah, like I've like yeah, you spend a lot of time diagnosing why these trauma movies are so boring while being so outlandish when you watch a trauma movie. It's it's really how did they manage to make this not compelling? Because a lot of certainly me watching it. And, and that's and you know, you and I love trauma. That fucking the everything I needed to know I learned about about filmmaking. I learned from making the Toxic Avenger, which is Lloyd Kaufman's autobiography, ghost written by James Gunn, co-written by James Gunn. I've read that cover to cover ten times. To funniest me, if you ask me funny 
funniest book ever written. I love that book. I'm in spirit with them. I support them. If Lloyd Kaufman was showed up and was like, do something for me, I'd be like, what do you need, Lloyd? I got along with him really well when I met him. Although he is, he is always on. He is like, there's no... He's performing Lloyd Kaufman every single second of the day, as near as I can tell. When you're in the yeah. green room with them, it's like Lloyd, you 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 don't have to sell me on this on on this DVDs. <laughs> you, you, you know, well, you don't have to pin a class of Newcomb High five button on my shirt. Thank you. <laughs> That's exactly what it's like. But um, <laughs> the other thing with Hen and Lauder, and something you told me about him, I, and I don't know where this quote comes from but i got this from you and it was like the real key to understanding him for me was he he said i'm not a horror filmmaker i'm an exploitation filmmaker and when you watch these movies it's not that that helps you to understand them you go oh he's interested in completely different things than other horror filmmakers. What what interests him about the horror genre is he doesn't even care about the horror genre. What interests him in making these movies is something completely different than I think most horror filmmakers. And, and it really, it just gives you an insight into the lens of, of watching these things somehow, that, that making that distinction between people who want to be horror directors and make horror movies and the mindset of doing something else entirely is, is I think a really key insight. And I don't think he's disparaging the horror genre. And when he says that, I think he's just trying to explain himself and explain where he's coming from. Yeah. I mean, he comes from, you know, that love of uh, the grimy times square of old, you know, <laughs> when you'd see, you know, the B movies, the monster movies, but also, um, you know, Quick, you know, Roger Corman films about junkies and things like that. And uh, yeah. like exploitation kind of is a bigger net, I think, than horror. And he's interested in the whole enchilada. You know, he's not just going to like limit himself to say, you know, I'm somebody who makes movies about a monster. He's going to say, you know, I'm the one who makes something about, you know, really digging into like what makes those movies fun and interesting. Uh, that real driving mentality. I've always said he is the most uh, like if you're a fan of Joe Bob and like you love uh, all the you know all the different shows that Joe Bob has done, all the different uh, books he's written. Like Frank Henenlotter is the most Joe Bob director. He's the most <laughs> drive-in director you could ever find. He's you know the most perfect fit for someone who loves what you know that kind of mentality is all about. So I yeah one hundred percent agree that you know it's limiting to call him just a horror filmmaker when he has such a better appreciation culturally of you know the kind of film that he wants to make. Yeah. And he also, it's important to remember, he's he basically leaves filmmaking behind to run the Something Weird video label, which is a primarily sexploitation um, label, although they they have a lot of those roughies that they put out are right on the border of horror. So the films like The Defilers or or the curious Dr. Hump. These these are movies that are right on the border of being horror movies. And I think that's actually the area he's in, that it that he's somehow closer, even when he's not making movies with much sex in them, he's somehow closer to the sexploitation genre's mindset than the horror genre's mindset. I think that there's this this I interest in um 
it's an almost innocent interest in depraved psychology and just being people who exist across the line of transgression in some way and an affection and there and there's such there's because he's not a hard director there's such an uh, I, I I I have to call it innocence to these movies there's there's such you never feel like you're in the hands of a depraved maniac at all. You feel like you're in the hands of somebody very sensitive and thoughtful with these movies, even as they're outrageous and gory and gross and grotesque and upsetting and mean-spirited. There, there's, there's just something very... <laughs> pure sold about these fucking films you know the two basket case movies are like feel good movies at times you know <laughs> yeah well that's the other thing that i think is important to keep in mind is that when you compare him to other horror films where you know usually the idea is like there is just the kind of very very basic ideas there's a monster that must be confronted and destroyed right that is threatening the norm and norm normalcy must be you know, returned to the world of this film with Hen and Lauder's films, whether it's Amor in brain damage or whether it's by Lal in the basket case movies, these monsters that he has, they are connected to the heroes, like in like either a literal way, the way that, you know, this, the, the twins in, uh, in basket case are separated or in a way that, you know, becomes, you know, they, where they come together, like in brain damage and how Frankenhooker comes out of like, is it a relationship movie, you know, to the extreme. <laughs> yeah. You know, and they, they all have like they're all very intricately uh interwoven, you know, to these characters. So you're actually the stories of these Frankenhooker too are the same as the stories of the monster. Yeah, Frankenhooker, it's about his the monster is the love of his life, you know, yeah. it's the exact same thing. Bad biology, you know, the mm -hmm. the monster is his dick. You know, what's more <laughs> instrument, intimate than that? And also the villains of these films are frequently the people that would be the heroes in horror movies. The people who have a hysterical, terrified reaction to the monster and want to destroy it immediately. Those guys are the villains in yeah, these movies. Especially the, in the basket case sequels, absolutely. Uh, in the other ones, it's, it's a little more, um, they're a little more like the college professors in brain damage or the the you know zorro in um in frankenhooker the people who want to destroy the monsters are the villains you know in those movies yes. although they're not necessarily i don't know that that the hardcore pimp would be the the hero of a regular horror movie although they would you know what they would a lot of horror movies have the sort of outsiders that society doesn't trust who are the ones who actually have to restore order especially in the past 20 years that's popular to have the 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 beleaguered outsider be the one who destroy who restores order but but you know it's you're absolutely right that these are all relationship films and the it's about the relationship to the monster and in every single one of them yeah yeah uh, there's another like a kind of a even classier comparison i think you know bride of frankenstein right obviously yeah there is a direct descendant of that but all these films have that sort of same kind of idea of like making the monster the person you the, the character that you most sympathize with is a very hen and lauder sort of uh uh, uh, uh mood going into these movies yeah, to to explore the inextricable link between the monster and the the more heroic characters in them, the more protagonist type characters in them. In a lot of cases, the the 
the the monsters are the second lead. They're the the co-protagonist in a lot of ways. You know, Basket Case is as much Bilal's story as as um as as uh Dwayne's and and you know Frank and Hooker same thing where it ends up becoming her story as much as his especially towards the end of it you know mm-hmm. um especially when she becomes the mad scientist um what shall we just go one by one get into them head yeah. for them should we start at the beginning and yeah, uh with it. uh with have you ever seen slash of the knife I is that have. possible to see I not that I'm aware of. I've never seen a bootleg of it or anything like that. We should have asked him when we met him. It's like fucking George Miller's short that like everybody says is amazing. Slash of the Knife is um most famous for according to Henenlotter and he's he's not a big bullshitter to me. I I tend to trust Henenlotter in interviews. Um, he says that it was scheduled to be shown at midnight screenings with Pink Flamingos, but the distributor of Pink Flamingos decided it was too offensive to be screened with Pink Flamingos, <laughs> which makes me go like, no way, a slash of the knife is like a more a traditional like horror film title. It's just like, what could that movie have been like to be like, let's put it in front of Pink Flamingos. Like I can imagine like Hen and Lauder's a good pairing with John Waters. That's the, those that's a good um, comparison. Although I, I I get more out of his movies than I do out of John Waters movies. I love John Waters himself, love everything about him as a cultural figure and an author. I love all of his books, his movies. I don't necessarily get that much out of, but, um, but like, what could I that think, move? I think Hen and Lauder maybe reigns himself in like gets the right balance in his films i think that waters tends to go off the rails you know yeah he just like is because just waters you're right he's also like very much an exploitation filmmaker you know by heart by nature and i think that he just kind of lets his characters just get so insanely over the top and he's so interested in camp obviously as well and has that kind of angle going that those movies kind of become uh, somewhat unbearable, you know, I think in, in certain ways that Henelotter does not allow his films to get like quite quite to that degree. That that although although I, there's a lot of people I can imagine you showing any of Henelotter's movies to and having them be, you say these are not unbearable? <laughs> you say that that's your... Uh, and I don't want to disparage John Waters even 1%. That's not what I meant to do there. I just meant like, what a fucking, like, can, what could that possibly be? What could that movie? I've never even read a description of what's supposedly in it. But after that, he goes and what does he I, do? It makes, me, it makes me wonder if John yeah. Waters had any say in it. Like if he saw the movie, if he, you know, thought if he recommended it go in front of Pink Flamingos, I have no idea, you know, if Waters even knows, you know, the, that movie. So. That'll be like, uh, let's go to a John Waters event, hang around and ask him. Those yeah. are always the questions I'm asking people after Q and A. Is these like I don't know what you're talking about type responses <laughs> I get from yeah. them? Yeah, for sure. There's this incredibly um, small piece of minutia that isn't been uh, elaborated on any sources I can find. You know about it? No, you don't. Great, fine. No, I that's understandable. <laughs> Sorry to bother you, Ted Ramey. <laughs> um, yeah, he does. Sorry uh, he does to bother best. you, supposed Seijun Suzuki expert. Who absolutely should have <laughs> fucking known what I was asking you about? Yeah, you wrote a goddamn book and you didn't know the answer to that question. Okay, <laughs> go on. Uh, he does Basket Case, his first film. Again, very low budget. Um, you know, uh, story of Dwayne and his basket showing up in New York, 
to visit uh, upon certain doctors for reasons unknown. But all these doctors end up getting horribly mutilated by the thing in the basket, which turns out to be his brother by law. And yeah, I, I obviously know this movie is great. And still, it's one of those movies where you put it on in 20 minutes and you're like, I can't believe how fucking great this movie yeah. is. I can't believe how like assured it is. I can't believe how genuinely upsetting it is. Like by lol, just the noises he makes genuinely upset me. <laughs> how funny it is. How just hilariously well the jokes pay, play off and just everything about it is just such an assured debut film that I feel like it's one that should get brought up all the time. Like best debuts of all time. Someone who was just there right out of the gate, knowing exactly what he's doing and what kind of movie he's going to make. You know, they say, you know, a great filmmaker makes the same movie again and again, but just does it, you know, with, you know, makes it more interesting and original each time. And I think that sums up Henry Lauder very well because right out of the gate basket case is like everything he's about uh, the grimy New York uh, that's, you know, captured in that film. Like that's the New York I want to see in a movie. I don't want to go and see like a romanticized Woody Allen, New York. I want to see the dirty scummy streets of Hen and Lauder's New York from the eighties. Like that is exactly the kind that I want to see in a movie when I go to a movie. Although he does love establishing shots of the world trade centers. You sort of get to see the world <laughs> trade center over the course of like 15 years in his movies. Um, yeah. And she even says, let's go to the world trade center. Right. At one point. <laughs> She's trying to take him around New York. Um, yeah, this movie is, it's completely unique. And every time I watch it, you you think, especially the more um, of that sort of neon slime era New York, per, New York of Perpetual Night movies have been dredged up. And everybody's seen Night of the Juggler at this point. Everybody's seen Report to the Commissioner, you know, um, how unique it is. You know, that that it really is so different from all of these other films that are theoretically in the same genre and how nobody has imitated this movie in any way. That this movie is like a, a film that every horror fan knows and is a landmark film in a lot of ways, but it remains completely its own thing. I think that's another way that it's a mark of of a real artist each time after you give the description what you should do though john is then you should then say this is the description of the movie and in this movie beverly bonner plays <laughs> his muse whichever character she's gonna pop up as yeah so what does she play in basket case beverly bonner his his <laughs> yeah his... beverly bonner is sort of the yeah she's the neighbor she kind of befriends Dwayne, and they go out and have a great time and it's her that he first drunkenly confesses that you know he's carrying his brother around in a basket and they're getting revenge on the doctors who separated them when he was younger and they have a psychic link they use him for an exposition dump but she's great she's the prostitute who lives next door to him in the incredibly sleazy hotel breslin and that is one of the john and i have uh, alluded to it you said it directly but the, these movies are very memorable for you know uh the idea that the older movies become the more be they become historical documents of their place and time the basket case is one of the great documents of new york city and kind of sleazy little hotels that it's just hard to imagine ever existed like this although i'll tell you i guess 
I'm so tempted to tell personal anecdotes on this episode for some reason that I don't normally like going into when talking on the the podcast. But I went to one of those hotels once with a woman I went out on a date with here, but it was out here in Queens. And it was like, she was like, let's, let's, you know, she was like, let's go, let's go, you know make sweet love young man and i was like great we'll go to your house she's like i still live with my parents and i was like what the fuck is going on here you're 30 and so she's like but there's a little hotel nearby and we went to it and it was like a 50 dollar by the hour hotel and it was like this is nightmarish this is like i have stepped in to fucking basket case and it was like <laughs> going into a time machine too because those hotels don't really exist anymore and there was like a guy you know who was like a, a balding you know wearing a wife beater that was staying downstairs and that might as well have yelled i'm crazy you're crazy this whole place is crazy was like his <laughs> his demeanor just going in there uh and then i was like i i can't do this this is horrible this is i can't get on this bed i feel like i'm going to get pricked with a needle if i sit down on this bed you know, that I'm going to pull it back and cockroaches are going to come out. But I I love, you know, there's the long tracking shot in Basket Case of Old St. Mark's Place. And to just go down that street and there's not much, there's not any narrative information in that shot. It's just Dwayne walking with Bilal in the basket. And I think Lauder is just interested in filming that street. I think that's the only reason that shot's in the movie. You know, maybe to pad out the running time a little bit. Another thing that's delightful about these films is I think every single one of them is under 90 minutes. Um, I, I don't think any of them managed to break the hour and a half mark, which is a delight, a joy. Perfect. A, perfect. A pleasure. Yes. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> um, and but yeah, all of these guys that, you know, populate this motel, he is such an amazing, he's just incredible at casting where it's like the kind of thing where you're like, is this a real guy? Like, is, is yeah. this an actor or is this like a real weirdo who is just hanging around that he just happens to know? Is this his like cousin's, you know, father's uh, friend that, you know, he just like, hey, remember that weird guy, you know, lives upstairs? Yeah. Let's put him in the movie. There's so many of these actors where it's just like, I don't know what to think of this person, but they're all so interesting <laughs> also is perfect at finding screamers yes amazing screamers even the uh the vet the the female vet that they becomes uh their last official victim uh that they're going out to get revenge on she's has this weird she's a veterinarian is this weird kind of monotone performance where you know she's just kind of like speaking very quietly uh almost like she's like afraid to engage in what's going on and then when she gets attacked she just lets those pipes out and like it's a full five minutes of just her screaming her lungs out and it is incredible like my mouth hangs open watching this scene because i just can't believe how long it goes on that's just her screaming at the top of her lungs while she's being attacked by this thing and it's truly memorable and just amazing so. yeah it's a, anytime watching his movies at home i kept having to turn the volume down and thinking oh my poor neighbors you know because the screaming <laughs> yeah. is so profound the screaming in these films and there's so many of these characters that the way he finds them and the way he shuffles these real seeming people into the film it feels like, was that written in advance or is that just something the guy said? And then it becomes part of the plot and they become part of the larger story. And you're like, oh, I guess that was planned. There's just such an um, 
uh, improvisational feel to everything. There's such there's such a um, uh, integrated sense of spontaneity to all of it that you really don't feel like you know where anything is going at any point. That you really feel like anything is possible in these movies, and it's very cleverly and in a way that I dare say sophisticated the way he uses these actors in that fashion that they give a sense of veracity and you feel like other filmmakers you know not I don't know why I'm bringing up report to the commissioner twice in one podcast but that has the like that film will take like 30 seconds to point the camera at a weirdo and then go back to the real movie right this this movie is built out of the weirdos you know all of his movies are built out of the weirdos and it's in a lot of those films it really will like okay let the crazy actual homeless guy we found rant for 30 seconds and then we'll go back to the film that's how in a lot of these films those people get used or they get one line the these people get integrated into the film they get to become real characters and be part of the narrative and drive the narrative in such a way that you're off balance where it's like does is this guy just a weirdo is going to get one line or is he going to become a bigger part of the story? What's going to happen with this person? And um, it's really phenomenal stuff. Even as I'm talking through it, it's like the movies also become one big balalas blob in my movie. And I'm like, which guys are in basket case? No, that scenes in brain damage, you know, kind of thing yeah. where like, what is that? Or is that? No, that lady's in Frankenhooker. That guy's in Frankenhooker, Right. At the bar, the dude dressed like the maid with the assless clothes on, that's Frank and Hooker, right? You know, that kind of thought in your <laughs> yeah, head. It's the Hen and Lotto cinematic universe at work right there. Exactly. I, I wonder if you can guess my favorite one. If you don't, if you can't think of it, well, I'll mention him when the movie comes up, but. Like your favorite favorite guy to pop up in the water movie. Uh, my, I love him so much. Uh, there, yeah, I hope. I wonder if it's the same one. I would be surprised if it's the same one. He has like a full scene to himself. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We're gonna we're be the same guy. I think we're gonna be talking <laughs> the same because he's so phenomenal, and it's the same thing where it's like you have the cameras on him for like ten seconds, and you're like, wonder who this guy is, and he's like clearly not an actor, and then. <laughs> It's the guy from Basket Case 3 with it's the freak me. Of course. Of course. Oh, you said Basket Case 3? Maybe it's not the same guy. Who's your guy? Who has the museum? Yeah, in two. It's two. That's in two. That's in two. That's in two. <laughs> right. That's in two. Demonstrating has, what you were just talking about. But yeah, yes. in Basket Case 2. Who has the freak show museum? I watched. I watched. I, I watched where's both. the lady with the $100 anyway? <laughs> I love them all. They're like my children. I love them all so much. Doing that this. That guy's incredible. Incredible incredible but i was also watching frankenhooker 2 and thinking his ability to populate this film with scales top to bottom is incredible the big swedish dude in the batman shirt you're absolutely mm -hmm. left wondering well who the fuck is that guy <laughs> who the fuck how did he find this guy for the movie and have him do the line like just top to bottom just oh oh my god no you know who my favorite is although i think he's a trained actor my absolute favorite guy in yeah. any of these movies it was wonderful <laughs> he's that that guy i i i want to bring him home to mom i love that guy <laughs> so much no it's true there are so many 
great you know i have so many favorites it's just like this is the one guy and you're right it's a log cabin where the logs are, are weirdos you know these movies are built on <laughs> but that's another thing why it like so perfectly evokes that time and place in new york because that's new york is built of weirdos you know and they just come into your life and out of your life and that's just the people who populate these movies it is it's absolutely true and we should mention and the star of this movie we should mention the star of this movie kevin van hinton wrecked right who's um got a similar like not actorly feel to him but there's like a real like texture to everything he does you you realize how that the movie doesn't work without him being him to it that that there's something about his manner and performance um he's got a sort of like gentle almost sing-songy voice at times in this distracted manner that it's just perfect. I, I really love his performance in this movie. He takes sort of a backseat in part two and three. We'll discuss it when we get there, but he's almost not, he's not the star of 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 two and he's almost not the star of three, you know? Um, but I think he's just phenomenal. I, th- I really love him in this movie. He's the kind of guy who has to have like, affects such a performance that he stands out among the weirdos you know that the weirdos the he's the weirdo yeah Only in the movie where it's not clear what's going on yet and he's you know like Bilal is talking into his mind and you know he's so he has that distracted you know kind of response to everything uh but also like seems like he doesn't understand how money works and how the city works and things like that yeah he's you know definitely like got that oddball charisma going on through all three films which is and consistent too. Should mention like throughout all three films is that gentleness, like, gentleness. This, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, Sorry. yeah. It's a kind of a, no. I agree. It's like a kind of tender innocence that he brings to the character that is uh, that makes him likable, no matter what he ends up doing in these movies. Yes, and combine that with Balal is an incredible character, especially in the first movie when the effect is such a cheap piece of crap. Like in the first movie, the effect and did did Gabe Bartolos do it for all three movies? Do the effect for all three movies? The the Mister Mister Spookies, I think he did. I think he because he also did Bad Biology, but um, but he's he's it's such a crummy crummy effect, and that Henenlotter like magically breathes life and pathos and intense emotions and sympathy into this puppet is incredible in the first film it's incredible how much you fear for Bailao and what a fully fleshed out character he is and how the thing that should be this monster and should be fucking roller gator you know what i mean is actually <laughs> is actually a real thing it's like a miracle it is to the point that i almost prefer cheap looking by law to the later ones where he's you know where the makeup is better and there's more money because yeah it's part of his charm that he is this you know part claymation you know part (laughs) non-moving puppet you know i mean it's incredible how much you care about him and uh and what's going on in the film and how much and how scared of him you are uh too when he just has this kind of feral sort of ferocity to him all the time where he's you know uh breaking up the room after he's been left alone, you know, just throwing everything around. You just, you, you feel that like, you know, like the people outside were like, what the fuck is going on? Like, you can't believe that like, this is an actual 
that you're feeling like, oh, I care that this puppet's running around, like throwing the lamp across the room, but because he sells it, uh, because he because that becomes a fully fleshed character, you get that feeling throughout from the beginning to the end. Yeah, and I and it's not it's not Gabe Bartolos who does who does this one. I don't I don't think. Um, he does two and three and bad biology. Um, later on, so he's definitely a Hennen Lauder guy. He also, you know, um, you know, he's if he's you know, I'm sure you know who he is. He did From Beyond, <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre too, and you know, uh, stuff like that. Drawing restraint number nine. Um, but uh, but yeah, but I think that this is it's there's so much about this movie that feels miraculous and and just the character of Bilal is part of that, you know, is part of the magic. Yeah. I mean, you need to be sold on it when he, when he voyages out to find Dwayne's girlfriend, the, the girl, the receptionist that he started a relationship with and, you know, throttles her to death when he tries to, you know, get with her. It, you know, that again, it's that Bride of Frankenstein thing, that tragedy where, you know, are both horrified by what's happening to her but feel like this tragic sadness of by at the same time, you know, that he's trying to reach out and like be, have a connection with somebody the way that Dwayne easily can. And that he can't, and out of frustration, he kills her, you know, that can't be sold. If like, you're not 100% believing this character. Which yeah, you absolutely do. And I think what, again, what makes it separate from a horror film, the logic that drives this movie is not scares and set pieces and um, even telling a, a ripping horror story or thriller. It's the emotional logic of these characters through and through that is driving the film. And throughout his work, it is the emotional logic of the characters that creates their narrative. Um, and I think that that's very, you know, like, what's the emotional logic of Jason Voorhees? You know, what's the emotional logic of Freddy Krueger? Like, these are very super duper shallow answers to that question, you know, like, uh, you know, very basic, like, well, his mom was killed, you know, and I guess in part two of the Jason movies, there's something there. But these movies are definitely about what are Dwayne and Bilal feeling? You know, this movie is about what are Dwayne and Balau feeling? What is the relationship of their feelings to each other? What's the relationship to a family member that you're too close to that relies on you, to the people that rely on you, that nobody has cared for them but you, you know? And now does that create unhealthy emotions, you know? What do you need to do when the world, you have a huge responsibility, the world's going to literally throw this person away and treat them like trash unless you're there for them, but you need to live your own life. I think we've all been in those kind of situations with people, whether it's a, you know, somebody we're dating or a parent or a sibling that, that we've been in those situations, you know, that we, we sort of understand both Dwayne and Bilal. And we've also been the person who's being thrown away, feeling like the world doesn't care. And we're going to be the piece of trash that wants to be removed and thrown out that we're the monster that doesn't need to be uh, regarded as even human. Yeah, it's almost like a psychological term, uh, a duality that you could say the, the term basket case is not only like someone who's nuts, but it could also be like someone you put in a basket, you know, and try <laughs> and are embarrassed by and don't want like to be part of your life, who's an inconvenience for you, you know, to live like the way you want to live. And the, again, the tragedy of like, you know, 
either being the one who's pushing someone away or the one who was pushed away, you know, yeah. I mean, the, these two characters and their, you know, interconnectedness is the whole, is the whole thing in the movie. Yeah. It's so, it's just so good. This movie is so good. And he made it for $35,000 shot it on 35. <laughs> and the one performance too, that like doesn't, you know, match up to like uh, to everyone else and gets repeated in all three movies. <laughs> Although I do find it very charming, the flashback to young Dwayne, you know, being ushered into the surgery going, help, oh God, no, help, help, help me. <laughs> but just even, that even shot, fun. even the shot of him with Bilal still on his side is so striking and beautiful and crazy and sad. It's just such, it's, this movie's fucking incredible. Yeah, just like the way, you know, it's not the, <laughs> for anyone who hasn't seen it, why haven't you seen it? You should absolutely see it. It's uh, not the classic conjoined twins. It's like by law, it's literally like a head and arm, uh, you know, out of, like coming out of his side. So the impression that when he, they're attached is like he's like looking around him, like he's like looking around his bag that he's like behind him looking out and like almost like of a shy or nervous way makes him very endearing. Yeah, super very endearing. striking image. I agree. So um, let's keep, just let's keep going. Let's go yeah. through an order. Um, do you have any more insights, any more things you wanted to say about, about Basket Case? I'm sure we can get back to it when we talk about <laughs> sequels, if I forgot anything. Um, so then we'll just go straight through. The next one is Brain Damage. And this is the one that that you had said, and I kind of agree with you. I, I'm tempted to call his masterpiece, but what's the plot of Brain Damage? So I'll just say, I'll just say right off the bat, before you know anything that's going on in this movie, that same kind of like weirdo craziness of everybody around you know everyone who populates the film is just like thrust right into your face with these two people in an apartment this married couple who uh are running around looking for something we know not what but they are losing their mind once again you have an amazing hen and lauder screamer in this woman she's just screaming and running around the apartment they're tearing their apartment apart and these seem like normal people who suddenly lost their mind and gone crazy really sets the tone for this film right off the bat before we meet anybody any of the main characters we just like see these regular seeming people who just suddenly go nuts, <laughs> you know, and the intensity level is just immediately sky high. Um, so it, with that, you know, in mind, kind of setting the tone, it gets into turns out that the reason these guys are losing their mind is that they have this tiny little phallic turd shaped parasite named Amor and a, a, uh, the uh, centuries old, apparently, Amor, the awe-inspiring famous one is what it means, um, that uh, basically shoots juice into your brain and you get hooked on it and then you'll do anything that he wants you to do. And these people have been sheltering Amor and uh, living on his juice and he's vanished. They don't know where he's gone. And where he's vanished is he's gone down to uh, to a new host, young Brian in his apartment. And Brian becomes the new uh, host to Amor, who uses him to get to delicious brains. He eats people's brains. That's the plot of brain damage. And I don't know what 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 scenario would hook somebody more instantly on a movie than that one, personally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this movie is very obviously about drugs and drug addiction. It is it is the great drug movie of all time to me. You know, it it really is captures what 
it, what it is that what it is why people do drugs and what it means to be on drugs and sort of a lot of the movies that want to be about drug uh, abuse are like this kind of like fringe like like you know like christine p or something you know where it's just so far out of the bounds of most people's experience on drugs even addicts experiences on drugs that that it's you know, the joke I always make because I mean, look, this is another personal anecdote type stuff as I as I had really serious drug and alcohol problems when I was young, my best friend died of a heroin overdose when I was 30. And, and I come out of a world of drugs and specifically in my youth where there was a lot of enthusiasm for really serious drugs. And I'm around a lot of these people and, and a lot of this way of living it was in kind of similar to, to this sort of thing to dance around it a little. But um, but like most people aren't living like fucking train spotting idiots. You know what I mean? Most people who are doing a huge amount of drugs and doing drugs on a on a daily, weekly basis, drinking to excess on a daily basis, you know, like the the thing I would do every night is I would go to Whiskey Ward after work and they had for 250 you could get a, a, a whiskey and a beer, a, a wild turkey and a Paps Blue Ribbon for 250 and I would have six of those. So I'd have six whiskeys and six beers every night and then to like enjoy the rest of the evening, you'd take some, you know, some clonopin or oxycodone or something like that and then you get up in the morning and to get through the day you you do cocaine to like wake up and get through your day and and be focused at work programming the jacob burns film center you know this is like the life i was i was living i remember a guy got fired we had a uh, building manager who worked there who got fired uh, and he's a great guy, Stude who worked there. And I was like, he did a great job. I was like, why did he get fired? And they were like, oh, they saw him at the uh, the bar at MacArthur's Grill having a beer at lunchtime. And in my head, I was like, holy shit. Because I've been going to the other bar across town every single day for a decade and having a whiskey and a beer at least every single day. Like, that's a fireable offense. Like, what the fuck is going on here? I'm Where's my petition to rehire this guy? I keep almost saying his name, but this movie, it, it really is more like this, where you're just kind of like a fuck up living your life. And everybody's like, well, that guy's doing his thing. And they're not sounding the alarms or calling the police. And you're not, you know, living in your own filth and sleeping on the street and all that kind of thing. You're just kind of getting hollowed out and lost in your own world in living in this way that would be deranged to people if they had any idea you were living that way, you know, but they don't, they just know you're sort of absent, you know, and you're hanging out with your Almer, whoever that is, you know? And I think that also this, this movie, the people who are really fucked up when you're an addict, you look at those people like they're fucking losers. Like you're such a fucking loser. You, your heroin problem's so big, you lost your job and are sleeping on the street. You're living in a squat. Like you people are fucking losers. You know, that's like your attitude about them. You're much more like, hey, I'm just living my life here. Like, like the main character of this movie. And just that, that feeling too of like, let me just go take a week and get my head straight and I'll get all this done. And then you come back and you're like, why am I trying to do this? You know, like, why am I trying not to drink or do any of these things? And, uh, and it's just, it was just, uh, you know, 
I, I, am I going to cut all of this, John? It's funny for you to talk to me about this because you are one of the people who was partitioned off from that part of my life. For listeners, John and I had known each other since college. I have been around John exactly one time in which John was drinking and I was drinking uh, together exactly once that resulted in John falling down in the street in Chinatown and throwing up on my car and us trying to get John in my car. And John is massive. If you've ever tried to pick up a stone cold drunk, John Cribs, let me tell you, don't sign up for that job. But you are one of the people who it's like, this is not your knowledge and experience of me virtually at all, right? You know, this is this is not who you lived with with me. Right, right. <laughs> um, but it's in the context of all of that, that I watched this movie and it's like, I, you do get like, it's fun to be on drugs. Like that's at the end of the fucking day. That's what this movie is about. Is that like, it's really hard to resist Almer because it's, it's fun. What he offers is enjoyable. What he offers isn't soul deadening. That's ruining you. You don't have any memories of the bad shit. That always gets blanked out. All of your memories are of the euphoria and the the need for the euphoria, right? And and that symbiotic relationship is, I think, very very accurate. And I think has this movie has an incredible perception about that stuff that that like basket case it just feels real there's an emotional intelligence and emotional truth to it and an emotional logic to it that feels so incredibly real and accurate to me in a way that other things don't the joke i always make is that literally everybody i've ever known who's done a significant amount of heroin is doing it so they can talk later about how things got really out of control and they were really doing too much heroin they're all like stupid poser phonies who like do it for like the mock-up of being like i was i was just nuts everything was nuts then i was nuts oh you don't even want to know how crazy and wild my life was that that's every single person who does heroin. So this movie is very pointedly not about heroin. It's about people who are like, let's do LSD and go to Six Flags this weekend. You know, and like, <laughs> you know, like that's that's the people that this movie is about. It's it's the people who are like, oh, man, I don't feel so well. You know what would really help right now in the bathroom at work? A bump. That's a great idea, Chris. Do that, you know, kind of thing. People who want to listen to the light. Exactly. Well, exactly. Exactly. And and also, you know, forces of addiction in films are frequently portrayed as being demonic when when addiction is personified or made concrete in some way. They're dark, grasping, demonic things. But it's not. They're Almer. You feel like you're hanging out with Almer. It's fun. He sings you a little Gershwin-esque tune, you know? <laughs> and and it really is like, ah, it doesn't fucking matter that I'm falling down on this bathroom floor. I'm hanging out with Almer. That's really does how it feels, you know? That's yeah. really the appeal and pull of it is that like, you know, we can go to the concert. Let's go into the punk rock club. Let's be spontaneous tonight, you know, and you and, you know, and let's hop over the fence and go in the junkyard like that stuff is what it's like. You know, there's no murders in my case, you know, and no <laughs> sexual violence in which my dick turd eats a woman's brain. You know, it's it's but it is, you know, it, it is definitely like it's just got such a sense of that world and that life in a way that's really 
powerful to me and really beautiful and funny and strange to this movie. Yeah. I mean, in this kind of movie, you know, you look forward to kind of the low budget. How much of that am I going to cut, John? Like all of it? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, go on. You look forward to start over. (laughs) Yeah. In a movie like this, you know, you kind of look forward to kind of the low budget effects and like how, like what kind of, how innovative they're going to be with them in this movie. They are beautiful when they goes to yeah. the junkyard and he's seeing, you know, through the Elmer juice, he sees that windshield, the smashed windshield with all the lights oh, coming God. out of it. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. So it totally, you know, sells you on like, wouldn't you like to see a fucking smashed windshield look like this? Wouldn't that be fun? It sells you on like, Brian's state of mind when he's on the Aylmer juice. And at the same time, you mentioned train spotting the, you know, uh, the withdrawal scene from uh, the train spotting, the detoxing scene from train spotting seems like a carnival compared to like the one, this one where he's in this disgusting room, yeah. you know, sweating and being taunted by this monster. You know, it literally feels like this is what it probably really is like to come down off of a serious <laughs> drug that you can't do without that. You don't know how to live your life without you know daily you know being exposed that your to this body thing. will die with chemicals of your body are just completely fucked without it and with with aylmer telling him exactly what's going to happen too saying you know oh you know i can sit it out you know how about you could you can you take it how long can you you know go without my juice it's like oh my god he can't he really and it's a fantastic performance too i can never remember the actor's name the lead actor but he is phenomenal in this yeah he's very good rick hurst is his name um this movie also too i've got to be honest when it squirts the blue elmer juice on his brain and there's that opening scene where the room fills up with blue water and the light turns into an eyeball very very accurate depiction of uh, what it's like being on hallucinogens but also i watched that and i'm like i could use a squirt of that elmer juice let me see what that elmer juice is about you know, like I have that reaction to it, although I should point out I haven't done any drugs in 14 years whatsoever uh, <laughs> since I turned 30. When my son was born, I said, I'm never going to do any drugs ever again. And I never did. Not even once. And uh, and I stopped drinking, too. Um, it, Yeah, but I do. You're like, I, I get it. That Almer juice. Somebody if I was 23 and somebody had been like, we squirt it in your spinal column, I would have been like. OK, give me a shot. It looks awesome. Let's do, I'll do it one time, guys. I'll do it once. As long as only one once. person gets killed, then it'll be okay. <laughs> Almer killed him. Not 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 Rick. Uh, uh, not Brian. Uh, Almer also is a great, like by law, is a great creation. Just that puppet, you know, very simple, but like with that, those beady, tiny eyes and that grin that he has, you know, that looks like, you know, a car salesman grin, you know, that he's going to sell you something. And is voiced by the great John Zachary of uh, uh, Dinner with Drac fame, you know, (laughs) inspired choice to, you know, voice the character who has this great voice where he talks like this and so charming, so charming. (laughs) Almer's tune. I I love it. I just love everything about. And we should mention, too, there's uh, that that scene where the room fills up with water. He's a lot like the um, Water, Water, Every Hair by Chuck Jones, the, the yes. Bugs Bunny short. Zachary as Almer has a very One Froggy Evening-esque quality to him. <laughs> he has true. a very, like, uh, he. there is something cartoonish about this movie. And again, when things get described as campy or 
or cartoonish. For me, that has really negative connotations. This movie really seems to understand that like the Chuck Jones maxim of we don't want our films to be realistic. We want them to be believable. And that's like the magic of this movie is making Almer believable as again, he's this very sort of cheap stilted effect that you you know the the wires are showing the animal bones chicken wire all of it's showing on these guys you know but he makes them believable somehow hen and lotter makes them so believable and so just so charged up and um and again it's the the logic of the relationships drive this film it's about his girlfriend his relationship to his girlfriend that he's leaving behind and that he's becoming a danger to and she doesn't understand that he's becoming a danger to her and his brother which is like concerned but like not his dad, not a police officer, you know, like sort of going to swoop in and take advantage of the girlfriend. But also he's not a bad guy. I like his performance uh, a lot too. the uh, the I guess it's Gordon McDonald is that actor's name is Mike, the brother. He's got a very good quality. This He's got this Jimmy Garoppolo Morrissey-esque quality to him <laughs> that, I, that I find uh, very, not like not like Morrissey. He's got this. He's got this Jimmy Garoppolo-esque, large-browed, dark sort of jockish quality to him, even as the, the they're going to the Sid show, which I can only imagine is Sid Vicious? What a show? All of the posters on this place are for, like, Susie and the Banshees and the Damned and stuff. They've got, like, very punk, po- or very, like, you know, punk and new wave, cool music-type posters, and uh, but they're all, like, super squares. That's the other thing we should be pointed out. That's another thing that I, I think is true about, like, drug addicts, is a, a lot of them are just very sort of square, regular-seeming people, you know? I, I At this point, it's a cliche, I suppose, but it's not all, like, stylish punks and, and David Bowie alkalites. It's a lot of, you know, guys in a, in a Letterman jacket. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's funny because like that's part of the Hen and Lauder verse, too, is like he actually hangs around with punks and everything. Uh, the uh, Terry Susan Smith from Basket Case, who plays Sharon. I always wonder, like, why does she have that wig on? It's weird. Like, what a weird choice to ever have this very obvious wig. It's because she shaved her head because she was in a punk band at the time. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, we forgot to say, who does Beverly Bonner play in this? Uh, oh, what is she? Uh, man, I have to remember. She all plays. She plays a- she plays the neighbor who he's like, let me see your bathtub and barges right, in right. to see her <laughs> bathtub. She plays the neighbor a, again. He plays another neighbor. Now one with an empty bathtub neighbor with empty bathtub. We'll call her in this <laughs> Frank and great muse for this. And, uh, and I love, you know what the best scene in this movie is the scene that's absolutely um, so killer is when he goes into the shower when he's in withdrawals and sees Joe Gonzalez who plays Zorro and Frankenhooker in there. That scene is incredible. And that yeah. scene like recalls like a kind of like New York City grimy gay pickup culture that doesn't exist anymore. It reminds me so much of the scene in Sotten's Broughton where uh, he decides, where Kurt Robb decides he's got to go pick up a guy in a bathroom because now that he's the uh, reincarnation of Stefan Georg, he's got to be gay. And so he goes to the bathroom too to, to pick the guy up who shows him his dick. It has the exact same tone. They're like twin scenes somehow, you know? And yeah. that scene is just incredible. Well, that's another kind of underlying sort of theme of this film that kind of works into the whole exploitation angle is that there's this weird fear of sex that like comes with the Aylmer addiction where he has a yeah. dream of 
you know, he and his brother having the threesome with his girlfriend where like there's this creepy incestuous vibe and then, uh, you know, creeping up on this guy, you know, in a way, like you said, is like a, a gay pickup, like all these things where it's like he's very awkward trying to do it. And it's like he's, you know, comes off as sexually threatening or like he's afraid that he's going to be sexually threatening. And then, of course, the big blowjob death, the big, yeah. you know, showboating uh, moment there. Um, you know, all this sort of like works into like the grimy New York, the yeah. kind of hands well, off sexual freeness of, you know, New York at that time, which is also like dangerous and grimy, like leading up yes, to the period. It's, it, yes, it's exactly. You think of him and the way he's hollowed out and pale and has sores of he evokes somebody who has a HIV that's turning into, into AIDS in that scene and just how that threat is there in like the shower pickup scene, you know, like those kind of people that are that are a threat in that way as it's as it's tearing through by 88, it's torn through these communities, right? And done incredible damage in these places. And and it effortlessly evokes all that stuff without stepping on any of it. It just has such a texture to to all of this world god damn this movie's great movie magic oh the special <laughs> effects the best all of the like electricity and that the light blowing out of his head and just the special effects are all low budget in this but so charming yeah he had more money than he had with basket case but still very low budget and yeah for what he had they look fantastic and, and then you know uh, with all that i would also say another one of the best scenes the scene on the subway you know, is such an underplayed scene, you know, it's such a quiet scene, even though we have the effect of Aylmer coming out of his mouth, you know, as it's, you know, as it's going through mm -hmm. tunnels and going through the lights and everything, but it's just this quiet, sad scene where he, you know, Aylmer eats his girlfriend. Uh, and, and, you know, we get Dwayne from basket case, you know, sitting across from him and like this it's, it's might be the weirdest cameo I've ever seen in a movie because it's the way he sits there and stares at him and then just kind of gets up and walks away. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's in a way that it feels well, I mean, it obviously reminds me of the seventh victim, you know, that great scene where the body's on the on the subway. <laughs> yeah. Even more so, it's almost like Dwayne's showing up, but like, is like, what am I doing here? I'm in the wrong movie to get something, please. <laughs> I also like how he's he's creeped out by uh yeah. <laughs> by Brian that that even he knows something's up with this guy. Yeah. It's just, and even just the small things, again, like as a document of New York City, just where they hop the turnstiles, you know, and she crawls under, um, Parker Funderburg style, she crawls under <laughs> the turnstile. But and, that's like a great, it's just great that he can like do these big things then also have these small moments where it's so sad. Like yeah. It's so sad, you know, and that he doesn't even realize what he's doing to her. Uh, it's like, you know, it's a very tragic scene that is played so perfectly compared to everything else. I agree. This movie's incredible, John. Yeah. I give it four stars. No, um, <laughs> what else is there to say about this fucking movie? These I it's like I'm like tongue-tied with Hen and Lauder too, where it's like, have we said enough? Is there anything more to do but for me to fawn over these movies? Just pop um, it on again right this second and watch it. Right I know. Second. And it does again, like it's I, I feel like he's somehow linked now with Shinya Sukamoto in my mind, but it they have a similar like just get out there and do it quality. Like it's impossible to imagine Frank Hennenlotter say, oh, we don't have enough money. We can't do that. Like those words just are not coming out of this filmmaker's mouth. He's going to get out there and do it no matter what. And just and it and it feels like, again, like Shinya Sukamoto, where it's like that subway stuff. How many people are in the subway car with them? Two people. 
is it a cameraman and and Henenlotter there? Like, you know, like how are they filming that? Is that filmed in the the special subway set they use for for stuff to film in the city? But it just very much has the quality of being um, on the street and done. You know, of just yeah. there's nothing standing in the way. He's just going out and doing it. You know, one of the worst periods of crime laden streets in New York history <laughs> must have been terrifying to make these movies, honestly. Well, he's a real New Yorker. He feels unterrified by it. Yeah, he sure. feels like a huge amount of affection. He's almost I was going to say in, in 88, he's almost the exact same age as my dad. He was born two days before my dad in 1950. He's born in August 29. But um, but by 88, like he's soup got to be so used to the city he's growing up in new york in the 60s which is when the crime explosion happens you know the age he's turning a teenager i mean he's a boomer he's part of the of the crime age boom that happens that that causes the crime <laughs> explosion in the 60s he's the and, cause of the crime <laughs> but it just feels like he's he's been so steeped in it for so long you know that like how how could Lauder possibly be afraid of any of this you know there's a kind of like hometown cheerleading to his love of the filth and the grime you know again there's an innocence to it it's like you know the the the, the those dear hearts and gentle people oh back in my hometown it's got that that i want to be there i'll be there someday it's got that quality about new york city in the 80s to it you know he loves it he absolutely loves and it. and and he does again almer's tune he's got like this quality to him that's very or the personality number in basket case three he's got this like this very like mgm musical you know uh, thing to him you know he's got he's got gershwin to him he's just got this quality <laughs> to his work that's very startling and original that just it's such an interesting flavor to his soup you know feels like kind of the george kuchar uh, side of his personality to like be like yeah fond of show tunes and and old-timey actors and things like that yeah absolutely yeah um have we praised zacherly enough Former, he's like a he's like a, a Joe Bob Briggs, you know, Goulardi type um, horror host, you know, horror TV host who does the voice. He's amazing in it. I'll tell you one thing I didn't know about him until reading about him for getting ready for this. His niece created My Little Pony. Did you know that? Whoa! Yeah. So, so they're so they're rolling in it. Weird. Um, that's that's very surprising. I don't know what to to even say about that <laughs> could, could work Zachary's niece um <laughs> shall we move on to the next we're rolling in the brony dough yes basket case two do we have any any final thoughts on brain damage i think we finalized it basket yeah. case two tell me about basket case two chris what am I telling? I'm the one telling us about Basket yeah, Case 2. Yeah, you take it over on this one. Yeah. Basket Case 2, it picks up where the first one left off, where he's seemingly fallen off of the Hotel Breslin sign with Bailao, Dwayne and Bailao to their deaths. But they're not dead. They're taken to a hospital uh, where they're in critical condition and they're rescued by Annie Ross as the great Granny Ruth and her granddaughter, uh, Marcy. Is that what that character's name is? No. 
I can't fucking remember what the character's name, but he's there's granddaughter and Granny Ruth rescue him and Bailao and take her to her house of freaks, right? To be protected because she's somebody who has um knew his aunt long ago. The aunt in the first movie, if you remember from Basket Case One, his aunt was the only person that ever loved and cared about him. Uh, Dwayne and Bailao and treated Bailao like a human being. And uh and and Granny Ruth is gonna continue on that tradition she's housing a lot of people who are just as as freakish in nature as by lao but there's a nosy reporter coming after him to get the story because by lao and and Dwayne are implicated in the murders of five people and after they've disappeared she wants the million dollar reward she wants book deals so she and her photographer already go to the house in a private dick to to shake them down to get the story and uh become She's implicated in murders that they committed. Yes. <laughs> that they yes. definitely did. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, you know, uh, that's a, yes. The implication is pretty strong on those, on those ones. <laughs> As we've seen them commit them. <laughs> um, and yeah. And it's about uh, this, this group of, of freaks trying to protect themselves from outsiders who only want to bring harm to them, who only want to destroy them. A lot of them have sort of backstories similar to uh, Bailal or Dwayne of needing to flee persecution or having rough upbringings. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, like the opening of, uh, of opening of Sorcerer. First 40 minutes of Sorcerer there, right? They've all fled to their to their little town where now they've got to transport Nitro. Um, and, and, and what... Who does Beverly Bonner play in this one? Um, goddamn! <laughs> she just she's she just she just plays. She's the Kate. same character. She's the same character, right? There you go. She's yeah, on she, the news. Yeah, she's on the news. She's just Casey again, and and she's revised it to. Oh my God! That freak tried to murder me too. He was the nicest, sweetest guy I ever knew. This character, Casey, is not. <laughs> she's had a change of heart at some point in between trying to be killed. Um, and shelved the judgment. She's moved past it. <laughs> She's ready to look at the good side of Dwayne. Yeah. Um, this one, the first time I, what do you think of this one? What do you think I of love this it. one? I love it. Um, it's funny because I always wonder what like fans think of the sequels to Basket Case. I have heard people say Granny Ruth is too much. You know, that mm-hmm. they think that like, she's just a little too much of a caricature. I couldn't disagree more. I absolutely love Annie Ross in this role. I think she is exactly right. I think that she has this amazing energy and brightness to her while at the same time being like totally creepy and you wouldn't want to hang out with her in any case. Um, I think also that like she's a complicated character in both movies because while she is certainly heroic and like her beliefs, you know, her anti-freak persecution beliefs, and you absolutely agree with her on that, she is also, you know, a murderous monster herself. Yes. She's very happy to murder people. Uh, and sometimes not even for reasons they deserve to die. Um, so it's an interesting contrast to be like on this lady's side and be delighted by her and charmed by her uh, when she is ost- ostensibly the monster in these films. Yes. And she's almost a cult leader. She's right on the border of feeling yeah. like, is this a, a good or a bad person? Is she doing right by these uh, outsiders or not? Or is she agitating them towards wrong ends? You know, it is, it is, it's almost like a piece of propaganda for outsiderhood, you know? And, and it's like, do you want to be taken in by the propaganda or, or not uh, on it? Um, the first time I saw part two, 
uh, I really did not like it um, because it's such a shift in tone from part one. And I was one of those people that was like, what, what is this Granny Ruth? She's the main character, part two. Dwayne takes a very big backseat to her and Bilal is, is, is almost a non-character in part two. And it really becomes about her and the, and the gang of, of, of unique people of unique individuals, you know? And so, yeah. And so it really, I was like, I'm not, I'm not into this. And I was shocked to hear that you were like, I love it. I like you've at one point told me you liked it even better than part one. And that really shocked me. Um, and then I saw part three and I loved part three, but I think I was primed for granny Ruth at that point. And then when I watched him again, I definitely had a reaction of like, what was my problem with this movie? I fucking love this movie. This movie is great. I think when you know, Annie Ross is coming and taking over the movie and going to be the main character, it's very easy to digest. And Annie Ross, for people who don't know, she was a, a well-known jazz vocalist. Um, that's her background, an actress in some things, but really known as a, as a jazz vocalist. And again, just used in a very savvy um, way by by Penn and Lauder in this film. And she is the center of it. And there's a bigger budget, but the, all of the, the effects are still sort of charmingly ramshackle. And it becomes a little bit, it gets compared to Freaks a lot, but I think that's sort of like an iffy comparison in some ways. It's just like, because there's a gaggle of Freaks. I feel like it's pretty shallow comparison well, in I, some well, ways. I, I do agree yeah. with you that there's there's not a great comparison between them, but I think that they have that same kind of interesting contrast where you're like, you know, you're asked to, throughout the movie to sympathize uh, with this cast. And yeah. then, you know, at the end of Freaks, it's like, and now they're going to murder somebody. Yeah. And, you know, and shot in a way that's like, it's terrifying to see yeah. them like, you know, uh, uh, convening on their victim, you know, the way. Yeah, that's uh, fair. They do that's fair. Too. So, I mean, it has that too, but I, they're completely separate movies. Like, you know, I couldn't agree, <laughs> agree more. I think that, you know, um, you know, Bassett Case too, obviously, has a great time with its makeup, you know, loves creating these like crazy looking characters, uh, you know, doesn't have like a, you know, any, it's not trenched in reality whatsoever. I think that's the main thing you could take away from the basket case sequels is that these are fantasies, you know, they're, they're just kind of going off into a whole new world. And that's, I think the extreme that some people have a problem with between the first one and the sequels is that the first one is at least grounded in reality in this very like, believable kind of environment and with these people who seem like they belong there and the sequels like just kind of go off into wizard of oz territory <laughs> often you know just kind of go like road trip out to a town where you know a giant guy with several arms lives i mean you know they just like they just they're having so much fun building more and more up on their premise and i think that that is why they are uh that makes them so entertaining like of his films i think they're the most entertaining uh just on a like straight up level of like having a fun time, you know, just hanging out with these guys. He really builds that up in a way that, uh, which doesn't sacrifice, I think, any of like the more satisfying suspense or, or scares or anything that, you know, he accomplished with the first one. I think that there are moments where you are, you know, still terrified for like the things that are happening to these people or what they're going through emotionally, these extreme emotions that they're going through. He doesn't lose any sight of that. It's just more extreme, you know. Yeah. And I agree with you. It's completely divorced from reality. Uh, it, it's funny when I was watching it this time, I was thinking about like how much 
Um, Hennen Lauder loves filming on the streets of New York. He's very famous for that, obviously, and filming the real grime of Times Square and stuff. And this movie, a lot of it takes place on Staten Island, and he films Staten Island like he's never fucking been there before. And I was thinking, it's a really funny revenge thinking of how many bad sets over the years have stood in pretending to be in New York. How many times you get you know, Jackie Chan filming in Vancouver for the Bronx and you can see the fucking mountains outside or, you know, Kubrick eyes wide shutting, you know, New York City and just doing these horrible Jason taking Manhattan again in downtown Vancouver, these horrible facsimiles of New York and his revenge is this horrible facsimile of Staten Island. And it's like, <laughs> that's the most New Yorker thing I can think of to totally just like take a shit on Staten Island in that way. It's like his revenge for how badly New York is portrayed. Poorly it's portrayed. It really does. It feels like, uh, if not, you know, a distant island, a distant planet, you know, I mean, it, it does not feel like it's a real place at all, which I love about it. And I, always, I often wonder what he feels about the Basket Case sequels because he usually frames them in interviews as like, well, then I had to make another Basket Case movie to get funding for something else. You know, like he... He felt like he had to keep going back to it the way that, you know, Sam Raimi had to keep going back to Evil Dead or whatever. Um, but I think maybe that freed him in a way that he was just like, if he had like a certain sense of, oh, well, I'm just going to have fun with this one and just, you know, do whatever. I, I think that actually freed him up to like be, you know, to kind of create this weird non-reality of these films that like I really appreciate about them. And yeah. to just say, ah, half moon face guy, why not? You know, and. Uh, and what you said about uh, Granny Ruth as a cult leader was spot on. I mean, that scene where she's riling everybody up in the attic, you know, to go and take revenge. And it's such a Jim Jones kind of speech to these people. <laughs> and she's like wearing this robe and everything, all these ceremonies that she does. Why are you always trying to do creepy ceremonies, Granny Ruth? Uh -huh. uh, but, but, but but herself, like just a character that just seems like so, you know, beyond, you know, what a normal actor would do. Annie Ross brings so much to it. And Annie Ross, you should mention too, like her next two movies after the Basket Case sequels were for Robert Altman. You know, <laughs> like it's yeah, like what a crazy career. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. And and uh, one thing I feel like we should also mention about this movie is because I was going to say. I don't know what his relationship to him are either. This one is the one that feels least driven by emotional logic. This is the one that feels like the most plotty and sort of like trying to, to keep a plot going in some way. Um, these movies are incredibly simple that narratively these movies are incredibly simple. Like what we, when we say basket cases, he goes to New York city, uh, he kills a doctor upstate, then goes to New York city and kills a couple more doctors there's like nothing else to that movie, you know, like his neighbors wonder what's happening in there, you know, like I can you think of a scene that does not, you know, conform to what I've just said that they're very straight ahead. And it's when you we get to Frankenhooker thinking about Frankenhooker, uh, it's so similar to Frankenstein, obviously, and it's and it's plotting right um and th those frankenstein is so incredibly fucking simple the the original universal horror movies especially the james whale ones have like virtually no plot they are they are like over in 70 minutes they are really just here's five basic sequences and they're done and hen and Lauder's movies by and large, have the same quality. This one uh, does not necessarily, this one and Basket Case 3 do not necessarily have that quality, but Basket Case, Brain Damage, 
And um, Frank and Hooker are all so incredibly simple in their stories, just so incredibly straightforward in their stories. And even this one is fairly simple in its story compared to to, to other films, compared to virtually any other film. They have a, a basicness to them that's that's very winning, that feels like he can just focus on what he's interested in. Very satisfying, although this movie also balances the great subplot, uh, even though Dwayne is relegated more to the background. He's, you know, has this sudden culture shock of you know going from believing that he at least can function in the real world and be surrounded by people like him and when he is suddenly the minority now when he is you know in this house it drives him nuts you know and he yeah. doesn't know what he who he is anymore he loses that sense of identity of himself which leads to him you know trying to reattach by law to his uh, side at the end of the movie believing that you know he just you know the only way he can actually belong is to be a freak again like everybody else you know quote unquote. So they, they, that is handled very well in this movie. And again, uh, Kevin uh, Van Hetterick, you know, really nails that, you know, kind of uh, slowly going insane and like uh, almost like you're on the island of Dr. Moreau or something, you know, and yes. the one normal person in that society. Yes, it's very island of Dr. Moreau, island of lost souls. It, it does have that that quality to it. And that's funny that it I'm sure reviews do bring that up, but I always feel like I hear Frank's freaks mentioned, but that's a much better comparison where you sort of have this magnetic leader overseeing, you know, genetic outsiders in some way. But I love, I love the freaks in this movie too. I love the sort of walrus poop looking guy that's always wearing the overalls and the colorful shirts. I, I love the the boneheaded woman who's a poet. I have a guy with 27 noses. I love all these. And most importantly, Toothy, the most important one at all, corn-loving Toothy, played by the great Matt Malloy. That was one of the big shocks. <laughs> you and I saw this. Was it at Anthology? We yeah. went and saw the Anthology and Hen and Lauder introduced it and and did a QA afterwards and watching the credits and being like, wait, Matt Malloy of Armageddon fame playing Malloy and Armageddon <laughs> in the company of men fame and surviving desire. This guy that I really, you know, is in a lot of movies that I love, love, love a huge amount is, is playing Toothy behind the mask. And then that Ted Hope was the first assistant director. Ted Hope, for people who don't know, went on to produce um, a bunch of Hal Hartley's movies. I think he was one of the people who founded Good Machine and had an incredible uh, career as an independent producer, I think he was at Fox Searchlight and then he was running Amazon's movie division, Amazon Prime's movie division for a number of years, movies and TV. Maybe I don't I don't have the guy's bio in front of me, but Ted Hope is like big time. And then he's there assistant directing this movie with Matt Malloy, who's, you know, he, who is obviously a Hal Hartley connection for it because you know, uh, he's doing Hal Hartley's movies later and then and working with Matt Malloy on them. So it blew my mind when we saw this in the theater. Uh, mine as well. And I don't you know if you remember the year we were at Toronto and sat right next to Ted Hope. And oh. what I would say to him was, oh, was that the Matt Malloy who played Toothy in Basket <laughs> Case? <laughs> Well, because I went up to Henenlotter after the screening and keeping with the idea of asking about ridiculous minutia and said, was that the Ted Hope who was the same? He was like, yeah, it sure was. It's like, holy cow. My goodness. <laughs> well, if I ever sit next to Ted Hope, I'm going to be asking him about this, just so you know. <laughs> Do you have any questions for me, Frank Henenlotter, director of the film? Nope, just big Ted Hope fan. Huge Ted Hope fan here. 
And it's, just, it's a hell of a coincidence that he was involved with this film. <laughs> I'll tell you, it's made my day. Uh, yeah, this is a great this is a great uh, collection of uh, characters. This house, I love it too, and I love Toothy. Toothy's my favorite. <laughs> Even before I knew he was Al Hartley's Matt Malloy, I loved him. Yeah, and I could you know. Rat Boy, clearly a you know an homage to uh, Sandra Locke. No, um, <laughs> it's it's interesting. It is one of those things too where there's like the gargoyle person gargoyle, in the front, yes. and the frog person. You're frog like, what, boy. what are the rules of the freaks? Ah, who cares? Froggy, I gotta <laughs> find Froggy. <laughs> I know where he is. Frankie's on Staten Island. Um. Yeah, this movie, this movie's charming. I think of this one, you know, it gets as as violent and as dark as any of them and twisted. But I do. This one to me is like the feel good comedy. This one just makes you feel so much relief about like this enclave and this place to call home and people caring. Like this is a movie that makes me feel really good when I watch it. It's a funny, funny thing to say about it. But it but it really does. Again, maybe from identifying with outsiders so much and and just wanting kindness for outsiders and to give kindness to outsiders that it, it really like this movie touches my heart this movie makes me feel good and then you could throw uh ted sorrell in too from uh from beyond we were just talking about how from beyond is one of the great horror movies of the 80s so to kind of throw him in as the pi you know is yeah uh, is a nice touch and you kind of realize you know oh you know Hen and lotter and Stuart gordon have got a lot in common just in terms of like my affection for them mm-hmm. and uh, the fact that they were just clearly head and head head and shoulders above so many of the other horror filmmakers at the time and just doing their own thing and making a very like fun and funny movies that are just as gross and you know and uh, yeah. willing to like go to the extremes as anything else but also be like uh have pathos and humor in them at the same time like they they, they excelled at that more than anybody else i think yeah and it's funny this time watching these movies i was thinking a lot about Brian Yuzna, who produced From Beyond and and Reanimator, and his the movies he directs, and how different they are than Henenlotter, despite a lot of surface similarities. And I really do think it is that if you ask Brian Yuzna, are you directing a horror movie? He would say absolutely yes. And mm-hmm. I think that even Society, which is obviously the most Henenlotter-ish of all of them, I still think he thinks he's making a horror movie. And it's the emotional logic of it is is the is the kind of you know, just sort of horror movie logic of things. If there's something horrible out there, it's going to get me. What do I do now? That kind of reactionary in nature logic. These movies are not to use these as necessarily political terms, although I guess there's no way uh, uh, around it. These movies are are anti-reactionary in a very fundamental way. These movies, the Hindenlotter's movies are radical in a fundamental way. They're on the side of people who have... Uh, been transgressed or forced outside of the boundaries of society, forced outside of the normal rules of life in a way that's, it doesn't even think about it. It's just where it's living. It's just where its headspace is. It's just where they exist. It's not even a statement they're making. It's just the home they live in. It's the forest in which these mushrooms are grown. How do you like that insane metaphor that I made for some reason? <laughs> it's perfect. It's where Frog Boy would be with the, with the mushrooms. Froggy! Shall we move into Frankenhooker? Yes, we should. This film ever set in Hohokus, New Jersey? <laughs> uh, yes, although it plenty takes place in New York as well. Um, 
what do you, what, how Frankenhooker, it's Frankenstein, but with his girlfriend instead of a monster. So the opening of Frankenhooker is uh, uh, where we are there with our hero, the tinkering adventurer, Jeffrey Plankin, played by James Lorenz. And he is at a uh, birthday party for the dad of his his girlfriend, played by Patty Mullen, penthouse pet Patty Mullen. And um, she's a fatso. And there's a remote controlled uh, uh, lawnmower that uh, that's a gift for the dad that's been bit, built by Mr. Franken and it goes haywire and chops her up into a billion pieces. And uh, when the police come to uh, find the body, some of the pieces are missing, including the head. We find out that he's going to make her a new body using his garage tinkering equipment methods that we've already seen in action a little bit. And to do it, he decides that he's going to get the bodies of hookers. He gets over his moral qualms about doing this by drilling into his own brain with the drill into his moral center and then feeds them super crack that uh, he doesn't even feed them. They steal the super crack from him and all blow up. And he knows they're going to blow up because they blew up his pet guinea pig when he gave it the super crack. And then he builds a new body for his uh, beloved deceased. And but she's got too much hooker in it. It's got too much body parts. This is when the movie very become, much becomes Boilo Narsajek's body parts very, very much. And uh, she goes out and is hooking around Times Square and he's got to find her and save her. But uh, the pimp for the uh, uh, prostitutes that were killed, Zorro, they're all branded with Zorro, is on the case and he's going to kill her and him until uh, we get to the end in which his head is chopped off. And she puts his head on a new body, but since it can only be women's body because the uh, life serum is estrogen based, he's put on a hot body of a naked lady in uh, the irony. Don't get no better. John, did I get, did I get through it fast yes, enough? I want to applaud for that. That was well done. Who, who does Beverly Bonner play in this film? Uh, this one, she is on television and she is an advocate for sex workers, I believe. That is correct. You nailed that one. <laughs> you got to that one quick. quick. This no, I movie... remember because she has a philosophy in this one. <laughs> um, this, this movie should be mentioned. It seems the thing that's very funny about this movie, and again, that's like innocent and good hearted about all of Frank Henenlotter's stuff, is he seems to genuinely, the butt of the joke isn't sex workers and dehumanizing them. He has incredible affection and enthusiasm and sympathy for sex work and sex workers. There's, again, it's just like steeped in that stuff. It's non-judgmental to the nth degree, you know? Um, and, and, and affectionate and sympathetic to that stuff, even as it's, like big joke is a bunch of hookers blowing up after they smoke super crack. You know, it's it's a kind of that's that's the hen and lotter magic, I would say. But um, John, you take the mic on this one. I feel like I'm I'm going on and on and on and on, just grading and grading and grading like comic book guy. <laughs> no, he does have an affection for all of his characters, I think is the magic of you know the hen and lotter universe. Um, you know, even characters who are nasty or you know or greedy or they're after something even pimps who believe that you know the body parts belong to him so he's going to go get those body parts back you know i mean they're just such great characters and they're so much fun i you know kind of going back to why we kind of had more a negative view of this film early on i think one of the reasons is every time i would think about it i would think oh it's set it's 
stuck in his basement for so long. There's so much of like him doing the Jersey accent and just kind of being by himself. And it's, there's too much of it, you know, like it's too grand, it's uh, too single set, but that's really not the case because it really sets up when he goes into New York, it really feels like, you know, living outside of the city and going into the city, it has that great feel to it. I'm, you know, I, I still feel that every time I go into the city, since I don't live there, you know, this kind <laughs> of like, even though, you know, you, you've been there, you know what it's all about. You're still going in there and you kind of have this expectation of like, I don't know what to expect. You know, I think that could, anything could happen in New York City, uh, especially if you're out there looking for female body parts like he is. So there's a lot of that. And I think something that I also didn't really think about was the fantastic supporting cast of this film. Um, just in small parts, Louise Lacer as his mother only has the one scene, but like what a instinctive casting that is. She's such a weirdo. Louise Lacer, of course, is like famous for being in Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman and Woody Allen's early movies, but she's just got such a quirky New York personality. Yeah. So even though they're technically in New Jersey, uh, just to cast her in the movie, you know, instinctually is like it, 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 it makes her weird and interesting, even though she's not particularly doing anything other than ignoring her strange son. It's got yeah. Shirley Stoller. The same I know. Year she appeared in Miami Blues, you know, like that was her freaking comeback year, in my opinion, in small roles. Yeah. These classic movies. And if you don't know who Shirley Stoller is, she's the female lead in Honeymoon Killers, in which she is phenomenal, in which she gives one of the all timers. And because she was an overweight lady, Hollywood had no fucking idea what to do with her. She should have been a movie star. She should have been an Academy Award winning movie star. You could have put her in anything. She could have played any role. She's that magnetic and sexy and dangerous and has so much gravity. And she never got the chance to do anything else, even in Seven Beauties, which is the other movie that she gets cited as being like having a real role. And she's like a cartoon villain. She's like a cartoon Nazi in that. And so just seeing Shirley Stoller in a small role as Spike, you're like, God damn, this is great. My girl Shirley here. I can't. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the MVP over everyone is Patty Nolan as the, you know, eponymous Frankenhooker. She is. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the movie, you know, working falls on her when she's finally revealed, you know, with the body parts and going out and uh, picking people up and fucking them to death. If she, if she didn't work, if she wasn't funny, this movie would fall apart. And she's so funny. Yeah. Just like shouting these phrases that she knows from, you know, the the hookers who have been made, whose body parts have, uh, you know, made up her new body. Uh, the way she's shouting at people and, you know, electrocuting them to death. It's just it works so well so that when the movie switches over to her, uh, you know, it it thrives. And I think that that's kind of really what it's all been building up to is like, is the when we finally meet Frank and Hooker herself, is it going to pay off? And the answer is absolutely 100 percent. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, it's, it's interesting with her because she's, she's also got a sweetness to her that again, I think is, is a key ingredient in the hen and lauder special is that kind of sweetness that oozes out of it when she's supposed to just be sort of like the doting, uh, hocus wife at a backyard party. She does that really believably the fat suit is ludicrous and doesn't work at all, but she sells it. You, you can understand, you don't think this is, a penthouse pet vamping as a ugly person, you know, you feel like this is a sweet person uh, in that. But uh, also, you know, did I tell you that I've looked up, John, do you want to know the cover stories from her? I was trying to get an issue, her issue of penthouse. I was like, that'd be a pretty cool thing, don't. And so I was looking it up. 
Okay. The, uh, the Here are the cover stories from her issue of Penthouse, the August 1986 uh, issue. But, but can you guess one thing for it? Let's see if you're at any right on track. 1986, August. Challenger blows up. I don't know. <laughs> we have Mengala, the victim speak out. <laughs> oh my God. Forget Gaddafi. Here's our real enemy. <laughs> the Mies Commission, born again justice. Wow. Many Marines, daycare <laughs> with guns, celibacy, a hot new lifestyle, and the wittiest graffiti ever. But can you imagine a more like, this is where this is where perverts' heads were at in 86. Edwin Meese and fucking Mengala. <laughs> imagine buying just, a imagine, to read I'm, about the capture or the non-capture of Mengala. Ima- exactly. But imagine being like, oh, I got this one for the articles and people being like, that's way more fucked up than getting it for the naked <laughs> ladies. I just I just want to know more. Who's our bigger enemy than Gaddafi? The Meese report. <laughs> fucking insanity um yeah this is the movie too that crystallized me in my mind when i was watching them again uh that we haven't talked about how much hen and Lauder loves contraptions and gadgets this is the highlight of it but it's it's runs throughout it starting with the like wheelbarrow slaughter device that Bilal builds in the basement and basket case one to kill his his awful father there he loves like contraptions and gadgets you know the jerk off machine and bad biology the the fucking uh, coffee cart and basket case three he really loves contraptions and seeing him tinker around like the garage laboratory in this hen and lotter's clearly having so much fun and really enjoying it there's a peewee's playhouse-esque quality to this movie that i think is like that's actually a reasonable comparison you can say you know freaks and island of lost souls but there's also peewee herman to these films there really fucking is yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but I think it's that same level of like, what's the what's the, what, what's even the term you would use? Like mature innocence? I don't yeah. even know. I don't even know you would say like a, something that is, wow. Innocent, but deranged and adult at yeah. the same time. Yeah. Fun, but icky? I don't even know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it has that, that same sort of quality to it. Um like for the reason that I had a, I had a friend whose parents were Christian and absolutely would not let him watch Pee Wee Herman stuff like they, and this is before anything happened and it, but it's because he does, he puts out that vibe, you know, even before he got caught jerking off in a movie theater, it's just something about him that to like right thinking people, they're like, there's something wrong with this. Like I always the- think, I always think cause we watch Pee Wee's Christmas special every year. And uh, there's a scene where Flory, who was literally just aborted on the floor, tells Miss Yvonne, come stand over me. And she's like, okay. And you're like, oh, my God. I hope my kids never realize what's going on here. <laughs> um, and this movie is full. It should be mentioned, too. This movie is full of nudity. This movie is just top to bottom, you know, boobies and asses. You know, and and it's re- it's actually it was funny. I was watching it. I was thinking I was watching Basket Case Three. You have a really um, clear arc 
uh, and, and up through bad biology, delineating uh, fake boob technology over the years and in Lotter's films. Like you get a really <laughs> clear look at the evolution of fake tits throughout these movies and their their development and styles and, you know, perf- and, uh, and performance, you know, performance ratings of fake boobs. But it's uh, this one is the most sort of uh, nakedly naked of them. And again, just watching it this time too, I just, what a collection of scales. Of all of them, this one has the most scales of any of them. And it's it's delightful. It's a sheer delight. Just the prostitutes and Johns and drug addicts and scumbags, just like you open a bathroom stall in this movie and three of the grossest people you ever saw fall out doing drugs and fucking. That is just God, what the this way he keeps closed, trying to close <laughs> the stall. The door. Jesus. It's amazing. But like a love for these characters, right? I love. mean, he, total he, love. He can't even kill them seriously. It's total cartoon right from the beginning where she gets run over by the remote control lawnmower, which should be horrific. And they describe in horrific ways, but it is obviously played as a joke when all the when the super crack makes all of the prostitutes explode uh, all the way up to the end where everyone is just having, you know, like this is killed in the most hilarious ways where uh, he gets his head cut off. Uh, by yeah. a vengeful Zorro, you know it's it's the most Looney Tunes I think of any of Hen and Lauder's. It stuff. was wonderful. Um, <laughs> it is. It, it's it's even that John who gets brought in and killed by yes by yes. Frank and Hooker. He's he's so sweet and innocent and just good natured and up for like whatever she wants, just whatever she wants to do. He's delighted by it and he's like just like doughy and and sweet it's just like this and movie even happy after death satisfied exactly to have been fucked into an explosion it is it's incredible it's <laughs> yeah i'm just gonna keep saying that over and over about these movies they're incredible it was wonderful <laughs> no this one also i was thinking this time you know it, it must have been filming around the same time the initial episodes were coming out but it has a very tales from the cryptish quality to mm. it it has a very tales from the cryptish tv quality to it and i've never really heard hen and lauder talk about ec comics that much or anything like that but it feels like an influence when you read the old ec comics and vault of horror and, and tales of terror and stuff they're gory but they're like fun they're fundamentally fun somehow and these movies are uh with the exception of basket case they're all fun basket case remains grimier than the rest and darker and and dirtier um and it's just as good natured but all of these movies are like fun somehow i think that's also what separates them from the horror genre you know and what also makes them not their camp doesn't bother me they don't think they're better than anything else either they're not looking down on anything like when you watch like some fucking asshole like brian trenchard smith whose middle name should be i think i'm too good for this shit you know like it it doesn't have any of that quality to it which adds to the the fun it's not looking down on anything no no condescension no winking at the audience at all I, yeah or no, or the winking is so constant it's it's no longer winking it's just the sight line you know well again i think that there's such a ground there's still enough of a grounded quality to it just when all the prostitutes are like tr- grabbing the, the super crack and he's you know helplessly trying to get it back and warning them not to take it you know you can like yeah. feel like how helpless he is being overwhelmed by these giant prostitutes in this hotel room <laughs> 
no, not that. I didn't want you to do that. I really liked him this time. He's I was I was on the wavelength with James Lorenz's performance this time that that I thought this is like funny. I enjoy this. This guy's doing a good job. Again, he's like all of Hennen Lauder's leads were like, don't make me say this is a good performance. That's not what I'm trying to tell you about this, that this is a good actor giving a good performance. What I'm saying is they're giving a performance that's absolutely perfect for a Hennen Lauder film, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He's almost like Hunter S. Thompson and his like muttering to himself and just like kind of being completely non coherent to like anyone he tries to talk to. And uh, this kind of like mix of communication, you know, between him and everybody else. Warning contents under pressure. His poem, though, is fucking phenomenal. <laughs> My teeth flew, flew like bullets. I didn't know what was happening. They killed everyone in sight except for the chaplain. <laughs> it's gorgeous. When, he talking to the, when he's talking to the, the hamster, you know, like he, like the hamster's a prostitute. <laughs> it's just, it's great. It worked for me, too. It's fantastic. Uh, we should also mention, because it's part of the lore, there's the famous video box cover quote from Bill Murray of, if you only see one movie this year, it should be Frankenhooker. You know, that's, I think, one of the, like, the big, like, it worked. Like, this movie was in every video store I ever went to as a kid. This movie oh, yeah. was everywhere. And, um, and you know, apparently Bill Murray had seen them editing Frankenhooker and and liked it and liked Hen and Lauder and had offered up that quote for it when Hen and Lauder had run into him. Somebody had asked him for a quote. I, I think the the story goes that like one of the the PR distributor people had been like, oh, you like it? Why don't you do it? And Hen and Lauder was embarrassed by this. So he avoided Bill Murray. And then when they ran into each other, Bill Murray offered that up. But, uh, you know, it's it's the kind of movie that like um I feel like regular people like Bill Murray are like, ha 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 ha, Frankenhooker, you know, but there's like more to it than that. And maybe Bill Murray saw that. Maybe Bill Murray legitimately liked it and I'm not being fair, but I do feel like there's this entire, like, this is one of the great, like pick up the video box and laugh at that. There's even a movie called Frankenhooker that exists, you know? Yeah. That's, that's the condescending look, right? When you see it and you're like, yeah, Frankenhooker. I'm, I'm actually glad to hear Bill Murray did see the movie and actually liked it. It isn't just, you know, trying to get in on the gag, whatever it might be. You know, it's like the movie is, is the gag guys, you know, it's, it's, you're not like getting ahead of this movie by just pointing out that it's a movie that exists. Yeah. yeah. That that thing that Stephen Merritt always talks about where like reviewers would be like 69 love songs. Eh, eh. Like it was a joke they were making, not a joke he was making. Like this movie knows it's called Frankenhooker guys. Yeah. You know, like this is not a this is not an observation. This is not a joke you're making by being like, ah, eh, Frankenhooker. This is a joke the movie has made ahead of you, you know, like. Yes, absolutely. And, and that's like that's on Twitter. That's the and, only joke anybody makes is like the joke that yes. the thing itself is making yeah. at any rate. I, I think that that actually might have informed to part of my and I always, what, what, what do I want to use? Negativity, disdain? I never didn't like this movie. I just didn't consider it like his best one. Keeping it um, at arm's length. Refusal yeah. to embrace it. That it might have been that 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 aspect of it. That it was the one people knew. And it's the one people acted like, ha Frankenhooker. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, Frankenhooker. It's one of the great films made by the great Frank Hannenlotter. What's What are you trying to say? <laughs> it's awesome. I guess I kind of, you know, I held that against it, which is unfair, obviously. <laughs> 
my only other observation about this movie is it's made in 1990, but this is the last horror movie exploitation movie of the 80s. I think this is the last one. It's very, very 80s in its feel and approach. And I think that that this is like, if you had to pick the capstone to 80s horror, that this is it. That Frankenhooker's the last one, and then it's and then it's over. Then it's 90s horror after Frankenhooker. That's the very last one. The end of an era for sure. No question. Yeah. Uh, what do we have next, John? I'm gonna let you do the plot to basket case three, the progeny. Came out this no brain. Wait, did that one come out the same year as Frankenhooker? It that... did. Well, Basket okay. Case Two and Frankenhooker came out Great. the same Basket year. Case Two. Okay, Sorry. so this comes it, out later. Yeah, it comes um, out one year later. They're all on top of each other. Right, exactly. And it's because it was subtitled The Progeny what, that I got it when I was younger, confused with the It's Alive movies. Exactly. <laughs> like, you know, they that trilogy Well, they have similar like, covers. They have like, yeah. they have mm-hmm. like bassinets. They deal on the with basket monstrous cases. babies. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but anyway, in this one, Toothy's rechristened Sydney, which is too bad. But, you know, what can you do? He's no longer the great Matt Malloy, which is a crime. But <laughs> Did they think they were going to get away with recasting Toothy? It's fucked up. It's fucked up. I don't know. Toothy. Bring him back. Bring back the original Toothy, Frankenhead and Lauder. Frankenhead and Lauder. I don't know what I'm trying to say here. Um, <laughs> Bassy Case 3 is the It is weird how series. similar his name is to Frankenhooker. It's like if you said them very fast <laughs> together, Frankenhead and Lauder. <laughs> Frank and Hooker. Frank and Hooker. <laughs> Frank Hooker a uh, lot. Yeah. This is gold. <laughs> I might cut some stuff from the episode, but certainly not this amazing observation I've made. Basket Gaze 3 continues the adventures of uh, Granny Ruth and her cabal of uh, unique individuals as they go on a road trip to uh, to see her. Ah, oh, geez. Is it her cousin? I can't even. What? No, it's the doc. It's. I See, think he's just right, because he's just unrelated. Something we had not brought up in Basket Case Two is that Bilal falls in love with uh, Eve, who is uh, you know shaped similar to him, and they are an instant pair, and uh, they get along very well in the first movie, this the second movie, if you know what I mean. And so in this one, she is pregnant with his offspring, and so they have to take her to the doctor because she's going to give birth and uh needs special care so they're on the road in a school bus a black blackened out school bus to wait for Dwayne has been put in a straight jacket for freaking out and accidentally killing marcy in the original uh i keep saying the original the previous movie basket case two <laughs> uh and uh he is he is desperately trying to get back to by law to ex- explain things to to reconnect with him in some significant way while everyone else is focused on eve having her children uh but they run a fa- a foul of the local law and uh, and so therefore must once again, uh, you know, come up against uh, people who just don't understand and just want to ruin their happiness because they've never been more happy. I didn't mention the uh, the tall guy, the one guy who and he gets he, at the end of the Ooh. second movie and is repeat repeated in this one when they're looking they're running around looking for Dwayne in the house and he's like jumping and skipping around <laughs> like, really exaggerated way is so charming. I'm glad that they brought it back for the um, the recap in this one. Um. Yeah, and that's what it is. It's uh, it's half road movie and half uh, another crazy adventure for these guys. And uh, uh, I think there are a few new faces and a few along with a few old ones. Uh, and uh, yeah, I I I love it. I love this trilogy so much. It's so much fun. Oh, Cedric, I see you brought your lettuce. <laughs> 
Yeah, this one, this one is like the mo- I I like this. Do I like it the best I, of the of the basket case movies? I think I do. This one gets me the hardest. The the moment the this one I'm wrapped up in the plot when the horrible things happen to to one of his babies. I'm upset when people the violence I find really unsettling in this one. It builds to such extreme weirdness with Balal and the exoskeleton. The every character that it adds, you know, the six armed baby who grows up to be, you know, we find his granny Ruth's actual son, you know, just all parts of it, all the ideas in this movie. I like I like all of the scenes in this movie. This movie works for me, even the weird shit like the sheriff's daughter who is like attracted to all the inmates and like inflicts her S&M fantasies on them. I I like all of this and I like I like that we do get the sheriffs coming of the the police officers coming in and treating it like a horror movie and just firing their shotguns at anything weird they see. And I I I I really like this one. This one it it feels like part 2 exists to like reset the basket case universe. So then it can make Basket Case 3 in some ways to me. Like, let's reset what the Basket Case series is, set up this new world, set up this new constellation of characters, set up this new shooting style and tone and where we're going to film and do Basket Case 3 is what it feels like to me, you know? Yeah, for sure. I I like, too, that the guys, you know, it's like they're right. Those guys are fugitives from the law. They're murderers. They have every right to go and arrest them, except that, of course, they have to be motivated by the reward, the money, the monetary factor. You know, they have to be selfish assholes in order for us not to feel sad when they're horribly killed later on. Yeah. It just like keep getting worse and worse. Well, it's um, like the journalists in part two, where it's like, yeah. why, why did 80s movies hate journalists so much? It's just like all they have to be is working for a newspaper to be the villain. Like, that's it. <laughs> Well, yeah, well, Hen Lauder in particular, I think, has a, a bone to pick with the media based on the reporters in Basket Case 2, the uh, Morton Downey Jr. parody and Frankenhooker, and now the Geraldo parody, <laughs> Ronaldo in Basket Case 3. He's just, I think, picked 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 his side on that, that issue. <laughs> <laughs> very, very strange. It's a very consistent uh, running thing. Uh, one thing um, we haven't mentioned is that uh, these that... Basket Case 2, these three that are all right there in 1990 and 91, Basket Case 2, Frankenhooker, and Basket Case 3, they're all produced by James Glickenhouse, who is like the other, like, one of the big New York slimy filmmaker types, you know, just associated with it. I know him from directing The Exterminator in 1980. If you don't know that movie, it's the guy with the motorcycle helmet and the flamethrower on the cover in the leather shirt and the protector, which is the Jackie Chan, Danny Aiello movie. One of Jackie Chan's many early failed attempts to break into the American market. And um, he produced uh, these three, these, these movies feel like glick, the glick and housey ones is what I think of them in my mind as being uh, in some, in some way. Uh, And, you know, maybe ironically that, that the two basket cases are moved out of the New York that I also associate with them, but they, they, belong to that universe of them they all they all take place in a glicken house as opposed to the city <laughs> and it's funny when we went to go do this because glicken house later has a cameo in bad biology which we'll talk about playing the uh the guy is he 
he's working he's is he working at the magazine or is he just her agent i can't remember what he does he's guy behind a desk disapproving of the vagina head photos um and i really didn't know much about him and i was like i should look up james glickenhouse and uh there's a section in his wikipedia page that's just labeled cars that glickenhouse owns <laughs> Glickenhouse is an avid collector of former racing vehicles, especially Faris. The cars that Glickenhouse owns include 2010 SCGP 45 Competizione, 2006 Ferrari P45 by Panini Farina, 1988 Ferrari. Do you want me to go through all of them, John? I'm these are the cars. These are some nice cars. I I don't know. I don't know anything about cars. He owns a 1931 Duesenberg J446. What do you think about the cars that James Glickenhouse owns, John? The cars think... the toothy bought. <laughs> <laughs> well, you look at his list of movies and it's like, do you get rich off of doing executive producing Maniac Cop and Shakedown? I guess you do. You know, with, some with Peter Weller and Sam Elliott, Shakedown. You don't know that one? <laughs> Of uh, do. but these but these do you know maybe not to take away from them these these three the reason i mentioned it is they do feel like the ones that are like okay we gotta make money on these you know they do feel like they lean a little more into like well, basket case two it's a natural there's desire for a sequel frankenhooker great poster easy sell you know, they do have that feeling in some way in terms of how they're positioned in a way that the others don't, that the others just feel like weirdo ideas that sprang directly from Hen and Lauder. These these feel a little more like exploitation films, which I exploiting an audience, which I don't think Hen and Lauder would be insulted by at all. I think he'd be proud of it. Like, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's funny that there is a little more commercialism to these three films uh, compared to the first two. Uh, but I don't think they lose their Hen and Lauder no, at the no, same not time. At I think it's just him like, okay, this is the assignment. I'm going to nail it because I'm Hen and Lauder. You know? He's going to bring it to, he's going to bring his unique style to these films. Let me ask you something though, Chris. Yes. Have you ever considered butterflies and how the very process of their creation recapitulates that of the universe and the music be held therein? Yes, I have. Because I'm a naked lady in a dream sequence. Um. <laughs> I love the uh, the like weird by Lau's weird dream sequences. We didn't mention it in part one, but I think it's so beautiful when um, Dwayne is running naked and we realize it's Balau's dream and he's dreaming of like what it would be to have a full body and to run naked down the street. And of course he's naked because Balau's naked all the time. And you realize, yes, he's always naked in these movies and his body is permanently nude. And to have that in the first one is really like, it's such a beautiful little thing late in the film and it has such an exhilarating sense of freedom to it. And like, you know, like a beautiful dream. It really feels like a dream. And then in this one is like, even while you're watching it thinking, Oh my God, he had to run naked through the city. I would, I would not have done. That. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Just no, thinking exactly. the you could step on. Yeah. No, thanks. Sorry. Sorry, Frank. I won't do it. Um, <laughs> and in the freezing cold. So, you know, yeah. too because you can see the breath on everybody in that film um 
this one has a similar like when he's upset about impending fatherhood and worried about the the stresses of of being a father and settling down with one lady he has it's a funny joke to have him have a threesome sex dream with like super articulate philosophizing women you know it's it's really it's a perfect joke for Bilal in, in that and and I really enjoy that moment too is there um is there anything I don't, is there anything that um, distinguishes this movie to you from part two? There, like we said, a lot of these movies are really similar. I find that part two and three really bleed together, that they they feel almost like the same movie. And they're clearly shot very close together being released in, in 90 and 91. Yeah, for sure. They definitely have a, I guess, the parlance would be back to the future two and three or matrix two and three sort of feel of like these films shot super close together and meant to kind of complement each other and run into each other in uh, ways that are significant. Um, the way I think it differentiates is what you mentioned before is just that the, uh, the, the terrible things that happen are really affecting. Uh, you have that right on the police uh, station where not only does the police, does the sheriff's daughter get shot, but she lands on the uh, one of his children, and afterwards you, he the, he lets you sit there with the sheriff, discovering his daughter's dead body, and it's just like Halloween too, you know, where uh, uh, Nancy Loomis's father, you know, the sheriff, Annie's father comes, you know, and, and finds her and has and it allows him that moment of mourning that you like really can't shy away from, you know, you like it's like you know murder after murder after murder, and then suddenly we have to deal with somebody actually discovering their child dead, uh, even though this as you know this woman. Has been uh, nothing but horrible for the last twenty minutes of the movie. Yeah, uh, you can't help but feel affected by that. Or so when I, Eve gets shot in front of her yeah. kids, that's yeah. horrifying, horrifying moment, horrifying Absolutely. moment. Yeah, and it's the kind of movie where, like, when he, the sheriff comes to get by law, and he and he's in that exoskeleton, you feel for both sides. You understand why both of them wants to, you know, to take out the other one. Uh, that's not something you get in the movie very often. <laughs> You know, usually it's very one-sided. And even in the basket case sequels where it's like, clearly these reporters are meant to be terrible. Clearly these lawmen are supposed to be terrible. Uh, but you still feel like, geez, guys, maybe can we just like set aside our differences and talk this out instead of, you know, resorting to killing each other. Uh, that's a pretty deep thing for a, the third part of a, you know, horror trilogy <laughs> to do. <laughs> yes. Of a psychic of like a, a, movie that's initially the whole joke is what's in the basket you know that yeah. to expand that sort of one what should be a one known idea into three films um and it just get i love how bizarre this one gets i love how weird this one gets this this is a movie that's genuinely just top to bottom weirdness like barely five minutes goes by without that's a really strange idea you've thrown at us mr Lauder, you know and that's that's one of the things that to me it was shocking to me when you first told me that that he doesn't um that he seems to to disown them a little bit because this one feels so exhilarating and inventive it feels like the one like i said it feels like part two is is the runway for this one to take off from you know it really feels mm -hmm. like of like a movie that's not suffering from creative exhaust at all, but is very, very in, in full bloom. It feels it's a very exhilarating film to me. And it has really specific jokes, whereas the other ones are just are funny, just have like funny things happen. The multiple nose guy crying and snotting at the funeral is a great <laughs> joke. It like it actually takes time to like set up things uh, that I think 
uh, maybe the other ones didn't, you know, have the time to do, but this one actually has a lot of breathing space. You know, you feel like you're kind of there experiencing this world. Uh, and again, it's sort of the laxness of the Glickenhaus era of his career, <laughs> uh, where he has a bigger budget and he has kind of uh, a little bit more freedom to kind of try things out and be experimental. But I think that's sort of why this one is so weird is because he has the time to do it and try different things. So it definitely, for me, stands out compared to the second one, uh, even though they really do feel like, you know, one big movie kind of separated into two. Yeah. And I and it also this movie, it also feels like it has the corrective of how did we have Annie Ross on the movie and not do a musical number? And it corrects that <laughs> as well. It does um, and picks up uh, Frankenhooker's uh, poetry theme, Ode to Eve by uh, Elise, the character Elise in, at the funeral is fantastic before yeah. the pain of shotgun blast that through through that through your little body tore the pain of love that could not last when your heart was turned to gore it's gorgeous uh -huh. it's, i love that it's so beautiful it's so beautiful could make a glass eye cry i adore this movie i adore this movie john let's move on because this episode is already screaming right towards the trajectory of of two and a half <laughs> hours at least shall we move on to the to the the sixth film the one that seems like a little bit of an odd man out and is in some ways and we've definitely mentioned it less than the others even as we've been talking about the others we're going to talk about uh the the great bad biology from 2008 john i this is the one i didn't get a chance to rewatch. johnny i know i was like i wrote a review of this movie i'll remember it well enough but i i don't i, I gotta take the the backseat on this one uh, I will just say uh, it does seem outlier because obviously it's made so much later than these other films uh, because obviously it's shot on digital. It's, you know, a completely different era, um, but it's a Hennenlotter movie. Right? Yeah. And it's, and it's um, one thing that we should mention. So this one is also up until on Frankenhooker and Basket Case 3, his first three movies, he doesn't have a um, a screenwriter, co-screenwriter on it. And then Frankenhooker and Basket Case 3, he does. This one is co-written by R.A. the Rugged Man, the famous notorious underground rapper. And I think that also gives it a little bit different of a film. There's especially because this movie is populated by people that are ra's friends like vinnie paz from jedi mind tricks and uh remedy who's a wu-tang associate and jay zone and people like that it stars his girlfriend um that there's definitely uh of an ra flavor to this one too that i think is stronger than in the other ones which are all feel like pure uncut him and lotter to me that that an ra himself is in this one he has a a, a small cameo in it uh he's in one scene um that i do feel like i feel him in this movie this this movie to me knowing what it is is that like he wanted to make something with frank hennenlotter and it feels like almost a fan project to re to 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 resuscitate to resurrect hennenlotter to build a frankenhooker out of hennenlotter's parts and it works i think it works and feels like a hennenlotter movie i think that like miraculously something that should not work him making a movie so many years later on such a small budget with a script conceived of by somebody else who's sort of taking the wheel for it um that it still feels like a henna film i feel like i should mention that our good buddy marcus penn knows ra 
some amount and has worked with him, I believe, and that I've talked to R.A. many times. You know, he wanted me and and my uh, the guy I run my company with to do a music video or a promo piece for him. We couldn't get it together um, due to, uh, you know, just uh, diplomatic phrasing. Um, and, uh, and, you know, so it's, I feel like I, maybe I have a more sense of what he's bringing to this film than somebody else would, but it, it does feel like, um, you know, he's, he's got a lot of personality in it too, but it still really, really works. And it's still very, very Hennen lottery. And I think that's because RA is a super duper huge cinephile who really knows Hennen Lauder's work inside and out. And as he's doing an imitation of it, it's a very studied and detailed and knowledgeable one. Like he's the right guy to bring him back to for this film. Agree, disagree. Are you going to have anything to say? Cause you didn't yeah, watch it. No, no, You're no. sitting here with the of blankest expression on your face I've ever seen. I'm so just the, listening. So the plot of this that is a love biology. story. This is a love story. Yes. About a woman with a hyperactive reproduction system. Basically, she can only be sated by a very intense sex, which results in the death of her partner. And then she gives birth to a dead baby and leaves it in their bathtub. Within hours, like two hours after having sex, she gives birth to weird mutant freak babies. Right. That she leaves behind her calling card. And the, uh, our, the other half of our relationship is um, a guy named Bats, who has a sentient monster penis that is a drug addicted sentient penis. Uh, that when uh, he actually has sex, uh, basically leaves his partners in convulsions of seizures uh, that, that orgasms that never end. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he pleasures them so hard they lose their minds and he has to feed drugs to his dick to keep it alive and keep it under control. And at one point it gets so angry from him that it tears itself off his body. And the end half of the movie is this killer dick running around. And obviously as they come together, this woman with the 17 clitorises inside her body and an insatiable sexual appetite sees the guy with the gigantic dick, hears all about his monster dick and is falls in love with him. Just once can't resist him. <laughs> and that's the setup it should also be mentioned a big influence on this movie is obviously um welcome home brother charles aka soul vengeance which is the movie about the guy with the killer dick that strangles people uh it's you know it's obviously an influence because there's only two killer dick movies in which a dick strangles people but ra also name drops jamafanaka in his in his uh in his music who's the director of welcome home brother charles and the penitentiary series is probably what he's most famous for um but this movie it's uh it's it's i would say it's um a little less warm and innocent than his other films you know it is a little more it's edgier it's edgier it's darker you know it's a it's it's got less um less warmth to it than the other ones but it's just as funny and human it's sort of it's sort of like if you made the whole movie out of the train sequence from brain damage it's got that kind of dark upsetting quiet tone to it mixed with outrageousness you know i'd even say it's almost his most horror movie yeah and that it has what all great horror movies have which is uh finding beauty and destruction you know beauty and chaos uh this is a film you know about this uh these two people who you know are leaving destruction in their wake uh with their sexual uh appetites 
who are destined to come together and 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 you know to, to die ultimately you know after they have finally consummated their union and there's something really beautiful about it that that Penn and Lauder and RA find in this movie it's almost like hard to say what, what about it but it is like a really really poetic film uh, yes. that just wins me over every time i see it yes what wins me over wait who does beverly bonner play you're not going to remember you didn't fucking watch it again <laughs> She plays like she seems to be the head of some homeowners association who doesn't like his mansion that he's thinking about turning into a club. She comes over to complain. She's another neighbor, another nosy neighbor. And she's billed as Casey Balal in the credits, um, <laughs> which makes me think that this was a non-union movie and she didn't want to fuck with her sag is what what that what that reeks of to me. Um, but this you uh, uh, sorry to interrupt you. Uh, was I interrupting you? No. I'm saying, what does Casey play? Um, but this movie, what what makes this movie work to me is um, Anthony Sneed as Bats, as the guy who plays the dude with the killer dick. <clears throat> Basically the new Dwayne, right? I mean, the killer yeah. dick being his own bylaw. Yes. And, but also, you know, but also Brian in brain damage too. Yeah. He has a very much quality of that. He's a very Hennenlotter character. He's more of a like sort of pretty boy LA actor looking type than those guys. So every time I see a still of him, I'm, I'm like, ah, is he good in this movie? And then when I see him, he saves it. I think that she is the weak link. I think that she's no Patty Mullen, uh, Charlie Danielson, and that she can't, there's moments where she's great and she's another great screamer and she's particularly a great orgasmic screamer and like a heavy breather and stuff. But I think that it's a character that has a lot more talking than his characters normally do and is supposed to be more intellectual and articulate than them. And that stuff she falls sort of flat on. Um, I don't want to be too critical, but it does feel like, you know, if this movie is one notch down below the rest of them, it's because of her. But then I think about bats and I just think he does classic hen and Lotter, you know, performance and, and is not, again, not somebody that you call a traditionally great actor, but just is exactly right for this role is exactly right for this part. And it's a, again, it's like brain damage. It's another movie about addiction and sort of functioning addicts and, and the, distinction that people who are doing a lot of drugs and being self-destructive and living this sort of life that's partitioned off from the regular people around them, how they differentiate themselves from like pathetic addicts from the Jimmy jig lady, you know, and I think it has that on its mind. I think it has a, a kind of um, consistent theme from brain damage and that too. This movie is, is definitely, um, more sexually extreme than even Frankenhooker, you know, and I think that it, it's all he's concerned with. Hennenlotter's consistently concerned with sex, but as because he's concerned with emotion and connection, you know, and I think that that's again the concern here. And what makes it a Hennenlotter movie is that he's concerned with these sort of digressive sexual appetites and and neuroses and sexual degeneracies and deformities because he's concerned with the emotional half of them. And he's really concerned about how these things affect people emotionally, you know, that, and, and that's why I think there's the scene in the fast food restaurant where the teenage girls are discussing 
dick size and like whether they like big dicks or not it's because to show like they don't know what they're talking about they're just kids right and when you get older that stuff is actually attached to emotions that's why it matters like getting a good fuck doesn't really matter one way or the other it's the emotions attached to our sexual organs that are really powerful and important and i think that that's something Frank Hennenlotter sincerely believes and that this movie explores maybe most directly of any of his films. Yeah. I mean, these are another two, these two cats belong with uh, granny Ruth, right? I mean, they belong in the house uh, because they're two other, you know, mutated uh, individuals, you know, who, you know, can't function like normal people because of their bad biology. Yeah. Um, and the love that like, you know, he obviously has for these two people you know, um, in particular, Jennifer, you know, having that kind of like abandon, you know, just like, you know, she just runs with it. She's you know, has no qualms about, you know, victimizing people to get what she wants. She's almost like Frankenhooker in that way, where Frankenhooker has no, you know, idea of like what's involved in things, but she will just, you know, fuck a guy until he explodes. Um, there's something that's just like not only cartoony about it, but innocent, you know, in the way that we've been saying about a lot of his films even though she's literally leaving dying mutated kids in bathtubs everywhere she goes uh, and why she would fall in love with a monster dick. Yeah. <laughs> it's beautiful, man. That's what I'm trying to say. I, I love that, you know, in the digital era in this very low budget, different kind of place, Hen and Lauder was able to make a Hen and Lauder movie, you know, despite it being a com- technically completely different from anything he had ever done before that he would come through despite, I don't want to say restrictions, but just a different, you know, kind of way of making films that it's still like, he still got it. This is, this was a film that, you know, I've had so many movies, even recently we talked about one by a great filmmaker that we love, where he hasn't made a film in a long time. You're like, Oh my God, I can't wait. He's, it's his first film in so long. And then of course it's disappointing. And this one was not disappointing at all. This is one that actually hit, just hit a home run in my yeah. opinion. Yes. Although I think that I would differentiate just sitting here thinking about it. The monster dick in this movie does just become a monster dick. It's not an Almer or a Bailao that are characters who are, if not sympathetic, then emotionally intelligible. This is just a monster that at one point has a sequence where it's going around killing people, you know? And I think that that's, I think that that is like the differentiation between this one and the, and the others. Um, Although there, she's more of a monster, you know, in this. She's sort of uh, much more of the monstrous character. She's Bilal and Dwayne combined into one person. She's Almer and Brian combined into one person, you yeah, know. Yeah, which is what makes she's, this his most horror movie. You know? Yeah, she's even Frankenhooker and and Franken compare, combined into one person, you yeah. know, because she is such an intellectual and is so self-aware, you know. Mm-hmm. Um. I do also just want to mention where you're talking about cartoon characters. Uh, I want to be on the record uh, about my observation that Vinnie Paz is a good rapper who I like, but it's always hard for me to take him seriously because he looks like Patton Oswalt playing a character on Kroll show. I just want that <laughs> on the record about Vinnie Paz. Who I'm sure would fucking kick my ass if he heard me make that joke. Um, yeah. But this one, this one is, is interesting. And again, you're right. It's just, it feels like, again, like so many of his movies, it feels like a miracle that just like he came back and it's, and it's part of the group, 
you know, that it that it's, you know, part of 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 Granny Ruth's group, just as as much as any of the others, that it just belongs to that to that group of it, that it completely rounds out the half dozen in a satisfying way. Perfect six. Perfect six. Um, should we just briefly mention the two documentaries? You don't have any more you want to say about bad biology? Anything you want to get into the weeds on that one? It's got cameos. Glickenhaus has got a cameo in it. James Glickenhaus. It's got a ton of rapper cameos. Porn star Jelena Jensen's in it. Oh, Heather Hunters and Frankenhooker. So he's got a few uh, notorious pornographic actresses turning up in his movies. Sure. X-rated actresses, penthouse pets. Sure. Why not? That They, they belong <laughs> in the head and, and a lot of world for sure. Uh, I see the only thing I guess we shouldn't uh, add is, you know, R.A.'s eponymous uh, theme song at the end, which oh, just yeah. in my mind when I heard it for the first time. I know it's how we all found out that Hen and Lauder had cancer from that from that rap. It's also how we found out that some of the pussy man's bitches didn't show up. We also what happened from to that, pussy man's bitches. I didn't know that before I heard the rap. Did I tell you when I was at the Toronto? I'm not we... at all surprised that the pussy man's bitches didn't show up. <laughs> honestly, I could have called that. That's like a classic trauma thing. Like the bitches oh. didn't show up today. Um, and then the bitches leave. Um, I told you when we were up at Toronto and I was in the gift shop and I was wearing my bad biology shirt and the guy in front of me in line was like, oh, my friend, my friend Frank made that movie. And I was like, oh, you know, Frank Henlatter, he's like, yeah. And I was like, how's he doing? Right. Because I heard about the cancer and I haven't heard any updates on that. And uh, and the guy who was also he's probably Henlatter's age, you know, late 60s, early 70s reacted so negatively to my question like his demeanor entirely changed and he was like well he'd probably say fuck you for asking i was like oh yeah but is he doing it like i don't want to get into anything with this guy he's done well i hope he's doing all right then and just like the guy was like angry at me for the rest of the conversation you know and it's like what did you want me to what did you want my response to be like oh you know him what's it like being friends with a famous bird you know like what did you, I asked a sincere question about his health, which concerns me because I care. <laughs> oh, really? How did he make the monster dick breathe and had <laughs> this movie? Tell me some movie magic secrets. Wanted to fucking punt that guy. He was probably Canadian. That's probably why I didn't fucking like him at all. <laughs> I don't know when it, I don't know when it's just, can, Canada became the world's be biggest glad, villain. Just be glad that anybody in the world acknowledged your bad <laughs> biology shirt. I think that's Something you should be happy about. <laughs> I told you at the Chattanooga Film Festival when I was down there with with Lizard that uh that a woman uh walked up to me who was at the festival. It's like a horror festival, and she goes, "I have literally never seen a shirt for that movie before." And that was it. That was that was like, yeah, no, I <laughs> like that movie. That's a good movie. That movie just what a rare shirt. And I was like, I agree. It's an extremely rare shirt. Neither have I. Neither yeah. Have I. <laughs> no i was like you like it i made it myself did you really make that shirt yourself no but chicks dig that kind of thing um have you but, seen the documentaries i uh i have not yes well i haven't seen boiled angel the trials of mike diana which is about an artist who is i believe the only person to have been put on trial in the united states for obscenity uh he was he had a gallery show and he but he it's kind of baffling if you look at Mike Diana's 
art why he was singled out for this but i was a crowdfunding backer for 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 it and i never saw it i don't know what happened to it i don't know where you can see it or not it just disappeared it, it was on amazon for a brief amount of time uh yeah i didn't i didn't catch it while i was on there and then he has chasing banksy which i also haven't seen which was co-written it was co-created by anthony sneed who plays bats and bad biology right um that one i also have not seen i don't know anything about it not a single thing except that it references banksy which makes me want to not see it although i i should trust hen and lotter the one that i should mention is that um i've seen the herschel gordon lewis one which is enjoyable history of herschel gordon lewis uh he obviously has an affinity for him although i think his films are so much better than herschel gordon lewis and then the real one i'd really like to mention is that's exploitation which is exactly what it sounds like it's it's like the that's entertainment series but for sexploitation films and it is the definitive history of sexploitation cinema it is so excellent it's one of those movies that i don't know why it's not better known and referenced more often i guess because it's hard to get a hold of but it, it really is um it's it's the definitive history of sexploitation films and it's really good it's really interesting it's really funny it's really well put together uh it's insightful it's respectful it's obviously he's the guy behind something weird video it has incredible archival materials it could not be more knowledgeable and it's just you know it's it's the primer on that subject and it's and i really really love it i really think it's excellent oh i'm definitely gonna have to hunt it down see i ha i have a copy i can i can oh, great. uh loan you the dvd i bought it from him when we saw matt schiller that one year i bought it from him directly because i think it probably has rights clearance issues and so i i've i've got my copy uh, of that we'll bring it with you when we go to chiller this weekend <laughs> Oh, we are this. So we're sponsored by the Chiller Horror Convention. If you'd like to meet Amanda Beers, come on out this weekend. This recording Marcy will go. Darcy. This recording will go up after it's over. Um, John, is there anything else you wanted to say about the great Frank Henenlotter, one of our true favorites, a pink smoke favorite? He makes me man. so happy, man. He makes me so happy. I just, I don't know what it is. It's, it's funny too when you think about just the Basket Case trilogy by itself. And how much different two and three are than number one, but all three of them, I get the same high off of all of those films, whether it's something that's, you know, a lot more grim and gritty and more of a classic kind of monster movie or something that is a, you know, frolic with a bunch of strange people, you know, out into the world. Uh, totally, they seem like they would be completely different, but I, I get the same, like, this is fucking filmmaking, man. <laughs> From all of those, from Brain Damage and Frankenhooker and Bad Biology, I just love these movies. Uh, and yeah, it's 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 one of those funny things where it's like you know one of the reasons that it becomes such like a a bond, you know, I think between us Pink Smokers is that I can't imagine watching this, showing this to anybody else, and being like, "This is a great movie," and expecting them to feel <laughs> the same way. I expect them to just look at me uh, strangely. You know, I don't even know what the reaction would be. But I love that about them too, that I like feel like this is something that I'm enjoying, like on a level that I don't think other people could. Yeah, it's a weird thing where I don't know that it would ever occur to me to recommend these movies to anybody, even doing this whole episode. Uh, I don't feel like this is setting up for a recommendation, even as I call them 
flawless and perfect films. They're obviously cheap and chintzy and poorly acted and schlocky and almost brain damage kind of scripts in some way and and have overloaded with gratuitous nudity and cheap gags and campiness but they're perfect they're absolutely perfect and they're beautiful and exhilarating and completely unique and if you're on their wavelength i think it is like the kushar brothers or or something like that if you're on their wavelength this is this is it these are the only ones you know, and it they're so special and so unique that like, I'm just, I feel an incredible defense of them. Maybe this is too obvious to say, but I do feel like Granny Ruth to these like freak outcast things where like, I understand them, I love them. I don't care if you think they're hideous. I don't care if you think they're dumb. I don't care if you think they are abomination should that be cast away from the earth. I love them and I will die for them and I will protect them. You know, that is how I feel about these movies. That's a beautiful closing statement as far as I can tell. Beautiful sentiment. I feel the same way. These are our mutant children. We love them. (laughs) I love them like my own children. A hundred dollars. Ha, ha, ha.